There is no question that our national security is going to be seen at least through the prism of national biodefense going forward. The threats we face are real. The challenges we face are enormous. As a member of the bipartisan, emphasized bipartisan Blue Ribbon Defense Study Panel, I am very pleased to welcome each of you to this very important meeting this morning. Having your guidance on implementation and on the ultimate impact that these recommendations can have as we, as we consider these, these uh, strategies will be very, very critical. K-State has really become the Silicon Valley for biodefense. It's Biodefense Research Institute, the, the Kansas Intelligence Fusion Center, and the NBAF is all illustrative of the extraordinary effort that is now underway here in Manhattan. It's an amazing demonstration of innovation, of collaboration and engagement. And so as agriculture is elevated in terms of recognition and importance, it will be important for K-State to play a key role in providing the, the effort in giving us the kind of direction and public policy uh, approach that is necessary to get the job done right. And on behalf of the entire Blue Ribbon study on the panel on biodefense, let me thank you all again for being here and for your contribution. If I could have everyone's attention. Good morning, all. I'm Tom Daschle, and I'm delighted to welcome all of you to this important meeting. Let me begin by thanking Kansas State for their extraordinary hospitality and the effort that they have made to make this two-day experience for us such a great success. I begin by thanking General Myers, President Myers, for the extraordinary effort he has made. Ron Turwin, Sue Peterson especially, deserve our thanks. I know they're in the room here somewhere. And we appreciate very much all of the effort that uh, you have made. Last night, we had the most enjoyable dinner at a fantastic venue uh, right on K-State's football field. And uh, yesterday, I think, was an outstanding prequel to the discussion we're going to have today. In many respects, K-State has become the Silicon Valley for biodefense. Your Biodefense Research Institute, the Kansas Intelligence Fusion Center, and now NRAP, NBAP, is just another example of what you've accomplished over the last 20 years and what most likely you're going to accomplish in even greater detail and success in the next 20. 
as a member of the bipartisan, emphasized bipartisan Blue Ribbon Defense Study Panel, I am very pleased to welcome each of you to this very important meeting this morning. We are especially pleased to have so many distinguished speakers, and we're very interested in hearing your comments and the statements and proposals that you make with us today. I know I speak for the entire panel, but especially our co-chairs, Governor Tom Ridge and Senator Joe Lieberman, and expressing their thanks to each of you for your participation. They are very interested in hearing about your comments and about what we learned today. The, bi the, 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 the Blue Ribbon Panel on Biodefense has an enormous appreciation of the threats and the impact that we are going to be talking today with regard to agriculture. We take those threats in agriculture very seriously. And so the recommendations and the comments that you make to us are going to be central as we consider our proposals that we will be offering at the end of this year. It was about a year and a half ago that we issued our first report. Our study panel's recommendations totaled 33 very specific ideas on ways with which to address biodefense in a comprehensive way. We're very pleased with the reception that these recommendations have had in Congress and in federal agencies. And in fact, even today, one of them we can, we can say has already become law. This request, the, the proposal we made to ensure that we create a national strategy around biodefense. One of the components of, of that strategy involves four central sectors of government, including the Department of Agriculture. The realization that agriculture is central is key to creating the kind of strategy and coordinated effort that is so important as we consider how we implement these recommendations and create a much stronger biodefense effort going forward. It will be critical for the Department of Agriculture to work with other agencies, critical that we work within the, the, uh, the sector itself uh, as we consider the threats and the challenges we face going forward. My own experience over the last 20 some years occurred initially with my role as a member of the House and Senate Agriculture Committees. We have witnessed an enormous degree of, of, of an understanding and of, of, of general appreciation of that threat as we have considered what has happened in our country. I had my own personal experience with anthrax on October 15th of 20, uh, of 2001, and the realization that these agents, anthrax and others, pose for, for agriculture generally are ones that we ought to take very, very seriously. Agriculture is nearly a trillion dollar sector in our economy, and the impact economically, socially, and in health, as we consider those threats as they pose today with regard to both livestock and grain are ones we ought to take very seriously. 
So as we consider the recommendations and as we consider the role of the Department of Agriculture in particular, one of the most critical decisions that we feel is so important is who's going to be making the effort to draw this organizational effort together? Who will actually be in charge? How can we implement uh, the recommendations in a way that will move from talk to action? And so as we consider today our, our role and the recommendations made, my hope is that we can really give some thought not only to how we do this, but, but how that implementation will actually take place. And so having your guidance on implementation and on the ultimate impact that these recommendations can have as we, as we consider these, these uh, strategies will be very, very critical. So we're anxious to hear from our, our guests today. Before we go farther, let me, uh, let me introduce Ken Weinstein, uh, one of the advisors to Homeland Security and somebody who's taken these issues very seriously, and, and I'm delighted that he could be with us today. Thanks, Senator Daschle. Appreciate that, and good to see everybody. I want to echo Senator Daschle's uh, thanks uh, to Kansas State University, to General Myers, uh, to all the folks who are here today and the experts who've gathered. Um, this looks to be a very informative um, and uh, an interesting day of, of sessions. Uh, as Senator Daschle said, I'm, um, I'm honored to be a member of this panel, and um, I think we're doing what is really you know, important work or, or working with the communities that are focusing on an important issue in terms of our national security. I look at, you know, there obviously the bio threat, there's the natural, naturally occurring side of it, and then there's the terrorism side. Because of my background, I tend to focus more on the latter, on the potential for a, a terrorist attack in the ag uh, and bio area. And um, I see this and the effort that is being made by so many people, including our panel, to really try to concentrate effort uh, against the threat in this area, similar to what we've been trying to do since 9-11 in so many contexts. And the touchstone of the effort here, as has been the case throughout the, the governments and the government as in federal, state, and local governments efforts since 9-11, the touchstone has been coordination. If there's one thing we found um, after 9-11, we look back on why 9-11 happened, it was there were a variety of reasons. You know, there were a variety of governmental lapses, oversights, uh, but really what it was is a failure to coordinate the people who had the information that might have led to discovery of the plot and the people who had responsibility, operational responsibility, to prevent that plot from coordinating fully and sharing information. And so we've seen since 9-11, whether it's getting the military to coordinate with the intelligence community um, in terms of sharing information and coordinating operations, or law enforcement, for instance, the FBI, where I used to work, sharing and coordinating with the Central Intelligence Agency and the rest of the intelligence community to focus on their, you know, the, the common target, which is international terrorists. Both of them are going after the same target, but often not in a coordinated fashion. Or the federal government coordinating with state and local governments uh, to make sure that, that they were sort of equipping each other with the information that was resonant in the hands of each to go after this, you know, uh, and pursue the threat. Same thing here in the bio area, and as you, to said that you've looked at our, our initial report, one of the, the centerpieces of that report is recommendations to try to channel efforts and coordinate um, information sharing and efforts among the different 
and often disparate parts of the federal government and state and local governments that address the bio threat. And nowhere is that as important and as is the need as marked as in the ag area, where you have different players, as Senator Dash will reference, you've got the Agriculture Department, you have HHS, DHS, all working different elements of the threat and the and the the, um, the mission, but not often doing so in a harmonized way. And so today I think is a great example of the effort that's needed to try to coordinate those efforts so that we can make the strides that we made in so many other areas to prevent the next terrorist attack. I'm very happy and proud to be a part of this and look forward to the day. Thank you very much, Ken. Central to the effort here at K-State has been the leadership here at K-State. And uh, many of us have admired and respected General Myers for uh, many, many years. In my case, going back probably close to 15, 20 years. He has offered that same level of leadership and stature here at K-State, and we're honored and delighted that he could be with us this morning to make his welcoming remarks. General Myers. Thank you. Senator Daschle, thank you so much for the kind, the kind remarks. And Ken, welcome, and welcome to uh, everybody that considers uh, bioagri-defense such an important, uh, important topic for our country. Uh, first of all, uh, we do welcome people that travel all the way to Manhattan, Kansas. You found out that we do have airline service, so you can just fly right into Manhattan. Well, some of you did. Uh, you fly into Manhattan or you can fly to Kansas City and make a very quick drive up through the beautiful Flint Hills eventually that lead, uh, lead to Manhattan. I hope um, uh, our humble attempt to provide uh, creature comforts and, and comfort and everything you need has been adequate. If not, please tell us, and if we ever do this again, then we'll, we'll, we'll upgrade, our, upgrade our game. Um, we want to be good partners in the effort to protect our nation's uh, food supply, both plant and animal. Uh, we have, as people have seen, some, some expertise here and some facilities here that enable us to do that. And I will tell you frankly, it was one of the reasons when I finally applied for the full-time position of president of this great institution, in the back of my mind was, given my background, I thought I could be of some help in making sure that, that we are doing what we should be doing here at the university, this land-grant inst institution, uh, to support the efforts uh, that have come out in your recommendations as a, as a commission. Um, this is really important, whether it's uh, natural, as Ken mentioned, or um, somebody that wants to do us harm, uh, inspired by terrorism. Uh, it's, it's a real issue. Uh, some may not remember, but I, I became the chairman, took the oath uh, right after 9-11, 20 days after 9-11, and then seven days later, we're at war in Afghanistan. And when you start reading all the intelligence that was flowing in at that time, um, uh, extremists have lots of ways to try to get at us. And there has been a lot of experimentation in the areas that we're discussing here in, in, in the, the bio area. And, uh, and there have been, there's been attacks. And Senator Daschle has been, been up close and personal with, with those attacks. So I think uh, those of us that have been able to, to study this and see this know there's a, an urgency here to try to protect our, our country's food supply, both from a health standpoint and then from an economic standpoint. And the other factor is, if something dramatic were to happen, um, you know, then fear takes over and then your confidence in government 
uh, diminishes a little bit. And when you're afraid, you kind of hunker down and you don't do much. It could be, it could be devastating. I think about after 9-11 and the folks that n didn't want to fly after 9-11. And there are probably still some out there, I don't know, that will never fly again because the, the, the visual of an airplane running into a, a World Trade Center or, or um, crashing into, uh, into uh, Pennsylvania uh, is just too vivid, or the Pentagon for that matter, where I was that day. So uh, we appreciate the fact you made the effort to come out here. We hope we've organized this okay. And, and, uh, and I look forward to today because I'm, uh, I have a lot to learn and we're, we're, I'm learning every, every speaker. We have some great speakers lined up for today, some great panels. This will just be, I think, a fantastic day for me. So, so welcome. Uh, I got to I got to point out Ron Truen and Sue Peterson who uh, have been leading our effort uh, to to put this day together. We have lots of others, but to Ron and Sue, thank you, thank you very much. Sue is our um, vice president for legislative affairs, an icon in Topeka, uh, an icon on uh, Capitol Hill. Everybody knows everybody knows Sue, and uh, she's done such great work for us. And of course, Dr. Truen, uh, a lot of this area has been his life for a long time. And so, Ron, we we appreciate both you and Sue for doing this. So, thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much, President Myers. I, I said earlier that we feel very encouraged by the reception that our report and the recommendations have had among federal agencies and especially among members of Congress. One of the primary recommendations uh, that we made and that we'll continue to come back to is how do you accomplish this? How do you bring it about? How can we implement? How can we ensure that we move from talk to, to action? And that will be a central focus, not only in our discussion today, but I hope going forward. And one of the keys to whether or not we have just talk or more action will be what Congress does. And so it is fitting that as we begin this discussion today, that we are fortunate to have the Congressman uh, from the first district, Roger Marshall, with us today. Uh, Congressman Marshall was just elected and uh, already he brings a level of intelligence and commitment and passion to this issue. And we had an opportunity to talk a little bit last night, and we are very honored and pleased that he could take time out of what we know is an incredibly busy schedule uh, to open this session to give us his thoughts. So, Congressman Marshall, we invite you to come to the table and open up uh, with your comments, and we'd be uh, very pleased to have a conversation with you following your statement. Thank Welcome. You. Thank you. Well, I too am honored to be here this morning to address this Blue Ribbon Study Panel on Biodefense. I want to welcome you to my alma mater, Kansas State University, where I received a bachelor's degree in biochemistry in 1982. I want to welcome you to the big first district of Kansas, which is the largest producing agriculture district in the country. When I was growing up, Kansas was known as the, uh, the breadbasket of the world. We literally grew more wheat in Kansas than any country in the world. To my surprise, I also found out that we're the number one producer of sorghum in the country. We had the fastest growing dairy herd in the country. We have a very vital cattle industry, pork industry. We also grow corn and soybeans. This is agriculture. Kansas is agriculture. Agriculture is Kansas. 
It's our economy. Uh, 60% of the economy in my district is driven by agriculture. And certainly any threat to it is a threat to our existence. Want to pause just for a moment and, and introduce my staff here as well. I want to show you all and my alma mater my commitment to this district. And I always, my you know, coach used to say, don't tell me, show me. And I, I want to just share some of the people that are here representing us and will be very interactive. First of all is my legislative director, Kansas State graduate, Dalton Henry. And uh, Dalton is... Um, has worked for U.S. Wheat, very, very familiar. Again, I think it's a big statement that my legislative director is ag-oriented. Katie Sawyer. Katie, where's Katie? Why don't you stand up? Uh, Katie has season tickets to K-State. <laughs> Her husband is a K-State graduate, so she's in charge of the state. And Blair Benedict is, is next. Blair is a Kansas State graduate. There's a theme here. Kansas State graduate that, that we uh, ran track together here and go way back. So Blair's kind of in charge of the Northeast District uh, as part of the state. And then Rebecca Swinder is next to him. Rebecca's from Garden City, also a K-State graduate. Okay. And... Uh, lastly, one of my pledge brothers, Mark Ayers, he's not officially worked for us, but Mark is a pledge brother, K-State beta with me, and is kind of my inside circle. He's one of those guys that'll tell me when I'm wrong and not afraid to say it. So certainly, uh, you know, I, there's a trail of people here to follow up on this. I think it's very fitting that we're in Manhattan, Kansas for this event today, both because it's the site of one of our nation's most forward-looking investments in biodefense research in BAF but also because Kansas has proven themselves in leading and preparing for potential outbreaks over the last eight years. We're so proud to have been awarded MBAF. We've embraced it and look forward to the next decade as we bring it online. What I'm very proud of is when I go back and see Mr. Pence again, and when I finally get to meet Mr. Trump, I'm going to be able to tell them that MBAF is on time and under budget at this point in time. I think it's very, very important. As you know, the president is very outcomes driven, and it's going to be good to say that we've been faithful with what you've given us so far. Whenever you're working on a subject as complex as biodefense, examples of success seem hard to find. I would like to formally recognize the leadership role that this group has assumed, and especially under Senator Daschle's leadership uh, on this important topic. And especially, you organize without any type of congressional or presidential mandate to do so. The consequences of us failing to properly prepare for an outbreak of a major disease could be catastrophic, whether the source of that outbreak is naturally occurring or intentional from a terrorist attack. Looking beyond potentially traumatic loss of life that can result from zoonotic diseases, the economic losses to our agriculture sector could be tremendous as well. As I already pointed out, 60% of our economy is driven by agriculture in this district. Part of what I hope to learn today is what Congress can do to further this important work. My staff and I reviewed the 46 recommended action items for the panel's initial report, and many of these are areas you need action from Congress on, exactly as Senator Daschle just commented, to involve either funding or oversight. As I looked through those, I was especially excited to say there'll be a point person, and that you had recommended the vice president would be that point person. If we ever do have such a catastrophic event, I would imagine the president will be very busy directing forces. It will be excellent that there is one person to help bring all these forces together. I don't sit on any of the funding committees, 
that are centric to our operation, uh, to appropriations committees, but I do have seats on two very important oversight committees that you're interested in, agriculture as well as science and technology. You notice that Congress has a full plate this year. The president seems to have a very demanding schedule ahead of us. We're focused on health care and tax reform at the current time. We certainly have a full legislative calendar this spring, but in the midst of these discussions, we're already starting to talk about the rest of the fiscal year for 2017 as our CR runs out on April 28th, and we're already working on budgets and appropriations, of course, for fiscal year 2018. My overarching hope of this year's appropriations process is that we can get back to providing certainty, long-term solutions for these projects that are dependent on federal appropriations and get our work done as Congress. Researchers are particularly concerned about stopgap funding measurements and government shutdowns. As you noted, we spend $6 billion annually on biodefense. I look forward to being an advocate, a voice for these funds, and welcome a discussion about improvements needed. As I traveled across this district over the past two years, I heard over and over a theme of people's biggest concerns. Number one was the economy. Their second biggest concern in Kansas was national security, which just shocked me. I was Rotary District Governor three years ago when I would have these same conversations, no one mentioned national security, but suddenly, two years ago, people in Kansas who are insulated by the coast were suddenly concerned about national security. It was typically the mother of three, the grandmother of nine. I call it women's intuition, but when, when my housewives in Kansas, when farmers' wives are concerned about their own national security, something's going on. And we need to pay attention to those feelings and those concerns and start addressing them. I look forward to meeting with you today, learning more, and uh, would welcome your questions. So thank you for your eloquent statement and the passion that you've so articulated uh, on this issue. Uh, you're a physician, and you represent an agricultural district uh, uh, of remarkable uh, uh, stature with regard to its commitment to production and uh, research. Um, Seventy percent of the diseases are zoonotic. We talk a lot about One Health these days and the importance of what we call species-neutral approaches to, to addressing the challenges we face. You're in a very unique position as a physician and somebody with with extensive agricultural economic experience in this, in this uh, uh, realm. Could you talk a little bit about the importance of One Health and what we can do to further bring together the sectors involving uh, these challenges in agriculture and in health together? Yeah. Thank you, Senator. If I would criticize politicians is that they often think in silos. They tend to think that immigration is just a security issue and not an economic issue. Uh, but there's, and, and this is the same situation. Um, when Ebola threatened us, uh, my goodness, we were in a panic. And we were, I'm not sure how many people died from Ebola in this country, 20 or 30 or 40, which was horrible, but it could have been catastrophic. I've worked with Rotary for decades on eliminated polio, and a lot of the same systems that we developed from polio vaccination, we were able to use to help slow down Ebola, a lot of those same laboratories as well, an example of collaboration. 
And what I'm excited as I come back to my home uh, school today is talk about is to hear all the collaboration going on with Fusion in Topeka and the, the, the facility that's already here in Senator Roberts' building. And I uh, certainly expect that cooperation to go on. And certainly zoonotic uh, illnesses are going to require physicians and veterinarians and research people to work together. And I see that's my role is to keep pushing people to, uh, to bring this together. Don't repeat your your research that's already been done. Let's share the knowledge. Let's open up doors. Uh, enormous opportunities. Uh, Congressman Adrian Smith invited me up to Nebraska two or three months ago to their meat research center. What a wonderful facility they have. And I see incredible opportunity for NBAP to work with those people. Want to keep furthering this uh, the collaboration going on here. Well, I, I couldn't be more pleased with your emphasis on collaboration. As you know, the Agriculture Committee, the House Agriculture Committee, and the Homeland Security uh, uh, Committee is going to be holding a joint hearing a little bit later this year. And we're very pleased with the collaboration that that represents. I've always felt that the four critical criteria are resilience, innovation, collaboration, and engagement. And uh, you certainly reflect that as you bring the experiences you've had here in Manhattan to, to that committee. Could you talk a little bit more about your expectations for collaboration between Homeland Security and, say, the Department of Agriculture? I think it's uh, we want to keep reaching out to other. As a new freshman Congress, I'm trying to find my way around. But it's exciting that several people from Homeland Security have already reached out to us, and they have significant roles here in Kansas and at this university that I was not even aware of. So I'm excited that someone's actually reaching out to us to develop relationships so I can take that relationship back to the House Ag Committee as we do start suggesting appropriations. Very good. Ken? Just uh, appreciate your comments, appreciate your, your passion for this issue, and um, your appreciation for the need for coordination and collaboration across the board. Um, you know, obviously, we have a set of recommendations that have been well received, and I think, um, you know, the, the government, both the, the last administration and the incoming administration, have recognized the seriousness of the issue and recognized the sincerity of our interest in trying to pursue these recommendations. Uh, do you have any thoughts about sort of um, now that you're you know, you're up on the hill? That's one of the main areas of focus for us. If you have any sort of broader, st st sort of strategic thoughts about how we can mobilize um, some energy and focus on this issue up on the hill among your colleagues up there. Great. I think that uh, man or that Manhattan is no different than Washington D.C. It's all about relationships. And we are working very hard on those relationships, not just congressman to congressman, uh, but also legislative director to legislative director, chief to chief. And that's why I wanted Dalton to come. Uh, he's, he's as familiar with NBAP as anybody is in the city of Washington, I would say. Uh, he has lived this as well. And, and, and thank, he, he knows the, the people. I think that Vice President Pence uh, has a is a great person for us to, to work with. He's a godly man, uh, certainly has a great relationship with Congress. And my strategy would be to try to get Vice President Pence to sign off on this. And if we get him to sign off on it, I think we're going down the way. And from Senator Daschle's earliest remarks, I'm going to reach down the aisle and across the aisle. This is not a political issue today. This is absolutely national security issue. It's an economic issue. Um, I would just brag about my freshman class if I could just for a second. 52 members, 
Ten of us have military experience. We have two generals, a Navy SEAL, a retired police chief, a retired sheriff's officer, a, a CIA agent. At least I think he was a CIA agent. <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. Um, an FBI agent. There's not a professional politician in my freshman class on my side of the aisle. I think that we're used to collaborating. I think that we, we're totally focused on getting this economy turned around. And until we get the economy turned around, there's not going to be much more money to, to fight over. So step one, get the economy turned around, work on national security, talk about health care for a while as well. So I, I think there's the opportunity there. Uh, we just had a huge bipartisan uh, event two weeks ago with the other freshman class, working with Speaker Gingrich on another uh, bipartisan opportunity as well. So it's about relationships. And Vice President Pence. Asha and Senator Dashiell, can we talk to you? Any comments from either of you? Sir, thank you for, for, for coming today. We really appreciate it. Um, I'm not sure what Speaker Ryan thought when you said, hey, I'm leaving Washington in the middle of your retreat to come out here, but this is important. And, yeah. and we appreciate sort of the, um, the implied message back to the Speaker that this is an important issue. Um, we know of your background as an MD, and uh, we know that you were uh, concerned about uh, Zika, and, and other diseases. Still am concerned about still Zika. Am my, concerned. my own daughter can't go on a family vacation with us to Florida now to visit uh, my in-laws. So it's still, it's still out it's still there. an issue. Yes, yeah. we, haven't, you know, we haven't eradicated it from the United States or the world. Um, but could you talk a little bit more about your perspective, drawing on your perspective as an MD and, of course, as a congressman, um, and just give us your opinion on how you perceived things went in the United States with managing that and how you would recommend, you don't have to slam everybody, sir, but um, how you would recommend uh, we, we take that information, that experience, and change how we do things in the future. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm stating the obvious, but we were reactive rather than proactive. And, so, and a very disjointed, disorganized response to it. Uh, so we need standard, I would call it standards of care, centers of excellence. This is the way to do it. This, this Zinca is not the last virus that this is going to happen. Even HIV started off as a zoonic uh, harbinger. So I, I think we need more consistency saying this is the way, way we handle it. Uh, it's it's tough. If a person walked into my hospital, in, I'm going to or here in Manhattan with with one of these contagious diseases, it would be it would not be simple for us to deal with it. Uh, we need to take it up three or four more notches. Mm -hmm. And the world we live in is so much smaller today. People traveling so much more. I'm genuinely concerned. I don't want to sit here ten years from now and being on the panel where they say. Roger Marshall, why didn't you do something to prevent this? Did you do everything you could to prevent this catastrophic uh, disease that wiped out three-fourths of the cattle herd in, in the country? So we need to be more proactive. Mm -hmm. Ella? No, thank you. Well, Congressman Marshall, once again, thank you. We wish you well, and we thank you for your commitment and look forward to working with you in the months ahead. It's my pleasure. Ema. <laughs> <laughs> We will now invite our first panel to come uh, to the dais. Dr. Stephen Higgs is the Associate Vice President for Research and Director of Biosecurity, the Biosecurity Research Institute. Amy Kircher is the Director of Food Protection and Defense Institute at the University of Minnesota. And Steve Parker, 
uh, is the head of the North American Veterinary Public Health Marier. We welcome each of our panelists. I'm informed that uh, Steve Parker has to leave uh, early, so uh, uh, we will ask him to make his comments so that we can accommodate his schedule. Steve, please proceed. Thank you, Senator, and thank you to the panel for the invitation. Uh, yes, I, I will apologize ahead of time. I think uh, General Myers may understand why I'm uh, leaving early. I have twin grandsons that are graduating from boot camp at Paris Island tomorrow morning at 7 o'clock. I've got to be there. <laughs> Yes, my name is Steve Parker. I'm uh, the head of North America Veterinary Public Health for Mariel, which is now part of Beringer Ingelheim Animal Health. Uh, my remarks today will reflect similar remarks that I made in February last year before a congressional ag committee just on the state of vaccine capability when it comes to foot and mouth disease vaccine. As head of our North America Veterinary Public Health business, I am responsible for our interface with the government on reportable mammalian uh, animal disease management programs. I work with USDA Veterinary Service, USDA Wildlife Services, state and local uh, governments on animal uh, disease management programs. We strive to align the capabilities of our company with the mission of the governments to advance solutions against a variety of reportable animal diseases. Foot and mouth disease is the most contagious and economically destructive global disease of livestock. An FMD event in the United States will have severe, profound, and long-lasting negative impact on the U U.S. agriculture and general economy. The USDA estimates that economic losses due to an FMD event in the United States will range from $15 billion to $100 billion per year. Recent experiences in the United States with foreign animal disease outbreaks, such as porcine uh, epidemic diarrhea, uh, endemic diarrhea virus, and highly pathogenic avian influenza, underscore the need for preparedness in dealing with high consequence animal diseases impacting agriculture. The current North America FMD vaccine bank stockpile is undersized to respond to anything other than a limited scope FMD outbreak. If FMD vaccines are to be considered as a countermeasure to after an FMD of, uh, outbreak, the reality is there is no global vaccine production industrial capability in existence today that could supply the FMD vaccine doses needed in the event of a North America outbreak. And there is no new FMD technology on the immediate horizon that has been developed, validated, tested, industrialized, put through the cost-benefit analysis, and available in a time frame that will rescue the U.S. from this dilemma. In layman's terms, and I am a layman, there is no golden spigot from which FMD vaccine doses will immediately flow. There is no pirate's hoard of FMD vaccine inventory on manufacturer's shelves and there is no silver bullet in FMD research available any time soon to provide us relief. 
Thoughtful consideration should be given to advancing funding solutions that support building adequate FMD uh, vaccine bank stockpiles that are aligned with U.S. FMD vaccine use policy. Even though the current global FMD vaccine demand grossly exceeds the ability of conventional vaccine manufacturers to supply, an optimized vaccine need for the United States can be addressed with advanced planning and investment in building industrial capacity now. Expertise in FMD vaccinology is central to our company's history. For over 60 years, we've provided millions of doses of high-quality, highly potent FMD vaccines. These high-potent, high-quality DIVA vaccines are produced for government clients around the world for endemic disease control situations and also to assist governments in preparedness programs. In FMD-free countries, vaccine antigen banks are the standard model for emergency response to FMD outbreaks. Efficient antigen bank models match the quantity uh, of uh, bank antigen doses to the disease spread potential in target livestock populations, and that's combined with the manufacturer's response, rapid response to convert those antigens to vaccine. It's a misnomer that we have a vaccine bank. We have an antigen bank, which is held uh, to be converted to the um, uh, vaccine. So the North America Bank stores frozen antigen concentrate for the production of emergency vaccine. This is mainly for the reason of shelf life preservation. The frozen antigen concentrate has a five-year shelf life. Finished vaccine only has 18, years, uh, 18 months of shelf life. FMD antigen banks are the reference solution that allow FMD-free countries to excess rapidly and in outbreak situations large quantities of purified highly potent vaccines. Within four days of activation of the North American Bank, our company can produce up to 2.5 million doses of finished vaccine from each of the vaccine antigen concentrate strains and make that vaccine available for shipment to the USDA for field distribution. The largest inventory in the bank are antigens from our company. We have the broadest, largest range of vaccine strains globally. These strains are used to produce single strain or multiple strain vaccines. This capability provides an insurance of protection against the vast majority of the strains circulating globally. As new FMD strains evolve, we continue to develop and propose new strains for inclusion in antigen banks. For non-endemic countries like the United States, the process of constantly updating the FMD library of strains is critical due to the unpredictability of a strain event in the U.S. Marielle operates FMD production and vaccine finishing facilities in the U.K., the Netherlands, France, and Brazil. As the world leader in FMD bank management, we maintain vaccine antigen storage facilities in multiple locations for our global clients as risk mitigation service. Our bank management services provide the cost-effective advantages of timely new strain uh, inclusion, perpetual inventory rotation, and just-in-time antigen to vaccine conversion, along with risk mitigation in multiple shipping events. 
Vaccine banks are only a part of a well-developed FMD preparedness plan. Because FMD antigen banks only serve as a temporary measure in the face of an outbreak, optimized FMD preparedness plan should account for a seamless transition to surge production of the millions of doses of finished vaccine once the bank inventory is exhausted. The continuous supply of vaccine is critical to achieve control and elimination of the disease in order to return a country to disease-free trade status and steps to recover export markets. As requested by the Blue Ribbon Committee, we were asked to look at the challenges and opportunities. My comments in that area are as follows. The challenge, Presidential Directive number, number 9, calls for deployment of a sufficient amount of animal vaccines to appropriately <coughs> respond to the most damaging animal diseases affecting the economy within 24 hours of the outbreak. Today, the reality is it would be years before the industrial capacity exists to address anything other than a local focal point outbreak of FMD in the United States. Opportunity. The USDA APHIS FMD veterinary source sought, sources sought notice of March 2016 collected market research information on the ability of vaccine manufacturers to make, store, and deliver FMD vaccines. This information collected allows the USDA to evaluate uh, the strategies of increasing the dose holdings in the bank of vaccine antigen contract traits against all the high-priority FMD strains. It also provides information to USDA on the ability of the manufacturers to produce finished vaccine for an intermittent time period after vac uh, stockpiles are exhausted. This information is being used by USDA Veterinary Service to strengthen the options under their existing FMD preparedness and response plan. The opportunity for us and for the USDA is to develop budgets that support multiple foreign animal disease PrEP options to outbreaks. Considering these options, federal executive budget planning and political action should focus on the short-term needs of fiscal years FY18 and FY19, along with dialogue around the animal health components for medium-term needs and development of the budget for the next farm bill. Uh, years, 2020 through 2024. The program funding and the 2020 Farm Bill should be linked to long-term uh, needs in subsequent Farm Bills for evergreen approaches to the economic viability of the U.S. livestock industry. Thank you to the panel, and I'm available for questions at the appropriate time. Mr. Parker, thank you. As I understand it, uh, if your schedule does accommodate our taking the statements from the other two panel members before we open up to questions. Yes. That was going to be our plan. All right. Well, Dr. Higgs, we're delighted. We again thank you for the extraordinary day yesterday. You were a big part of uh, its success, and we appreciate very much the information shared with us yesterday, and we're delighted to take your statement now. Thank you. It's a privilege to be here, Senator. Um, so, Prevention and deterrence. I immediately, of course, looked up definitions of the terms and saw that <laughs> prevention is to stop something from happening or to stop somebody from doing something. Um, as an educator and parents, that 
is obviously not as easy, easily accomplished as it, it is said. Um, in terms of preventing an attack, uh, that's going to be knowledge-based. Um, we need to know everything possible about the, the pathogens and about the potential perpetrators. It's sort of know the agent and know the agencies that are involved. Um, the type of research that you, you heard about at the Biosecurity Research Institute is critical to, to gain that sort of knowledge and the information sharing capacity that we have and gathering with the Fusion Centre and others and sharing that with people that can uh, respond to that and put it into action is very important. <clears throat> um, I, in terms of awareness of natural events, um, I'm not sure I'm typical, but I start my day every day at about 5.30 a.m. relaxing with a cup of coffee, looking at um, the internet, seeing where um, things are emerging and where outbreaks are occurring. And that information is also available to those that may act against us. That's um, very, very worrying. Um, working with these types of agents is a great responsibility that we take very seriously. Um, you know the select agent regulations are, are very strict, um, very laudable, and we take that very seriously in terms of security and safety with, with those agents. But if you make an analogy of, of a bioterrorist to, say, a car thief, if you uh, would like to make that analogy, car thieves do not go to well-lit, well-fenced um, car dealerships with, with security cameras. These types of pathogens are available in many places. A few years ago, I'll tell a true story. You know, I had a friend who thought it would be fun to take undergraduate students to a prairie dog field with a battery-operated vacuum cleaner and suck the fleas out. And as part of that thought, well, we'll may as well make a purpose to this and, and look for Yersinia pestis. And as soon as they discovered that about 30% of the samples were positive, they realized that might not be such a good exercise in, in the classroom <laughs> at biosafety level two. Um, so these things really are available. Um, as I said yesterday, we, we have a, a good list of the pathogens prioritized. And there is good news that over the last decade or more, we have developed technologies that can very quickly identify those. Um, it sounds simple. If we knew where and when, I have total confidence that we could identify the pathogens. Um, and I know there's movement on this. this. This announcement came out yesterday, no, Monday, from Homeland Security. And um, I applaud them on this, that they are looking to develop a, a comprehensive bio-event detection capability. It came out on Monday. The applications are due in two weeks' time, and there's $2 million to do this. Um, I'm a little cynical, sorry. Um, <laughs> the other problem is that you look at a map of the United States, and your eyes focus on the cities and the towns. Um, agriculture is everywhere. Agriculture is in all of that vast area of, of gaps between. And the ability to detect a pathogen in those areas is going to be extremely difficult extremely difficult, if not impossible. I said with confidence that if we um, can detect a pathogen, we can identify it. But my mind goes back to 1999 with, with West Nile, a zoonotic pathogen um, discovered in 1937, um, first outbreak in Israel in the 50s, 
Over that 50 years, through field studies, through laboratory studies, we knew a tremendous amount about that pathogen. We knew the biology, we knew the transmission cycles, the pathogenicity, the genetics. And yet, when it occurred in 1999 in a major metropolis in, in the United States, in New York, we found ourselves unprepared. Um, since then, in five years, it spread throughout the United States in every, in every state. It's killed about 25,000 horses. It's infected an estimated 2.5 million people. Um, about 2,000 people have died. We're now seeing evidence that even those who don't become very sick may have quality of life and even duration of life curtailed. Um, we still don't have a vaccine 17 years later. Um, what did we learn? What should we have learned from this? Well, um, we were unprepared. Experts can be wrong. It was originally misdiagnosed by experts who said it's, it's not going to survive the winter. Um, you know, we have to not assume that the obvious is right. Uh, it was a very astute veterinarian who spotted that the pattern of of disease in birds in New York did not fit the pattern associated with St. Louis encephalitis virus. Um, and then we also learned we did not have enough facilities and we did not have enough people trained. The CDC did a marvelous job at creating um, and funding new training programs. And then they just were dissipated after West Nile is still here. It's still causing a lot of infections. It's not going away. But people are complacent about it. Um, the Honourable Marsh, Dr. Marshall mentioned Zika virus. Um, you know, Zika emerged in 2008. It came to the Americas in 2015. It's caused uh, over 4,500 cases in the United States, travel related, 200 and some cases transmitted by mosquitoes here, 35,000 cases in Puerto Rico already. Uh, you, you know, the big question is, how many times can we be caught unprepared? And uh, I wish I had an answer to that, by the way. Um, and let's not forget plants. We've got researchers, Jim Stack is here, working on wheat blast, um, a foreign pathogen that causes 100% uh, crop losses, potentially. Introduced into Pakistan last year, first time outside of Bolivia and Brazil, and has reduced their, their national productivity of wheat by 30% last year, and has just been identified again. It's still here, or still there, unfortunately. Um, correct me if I, I get this wrong, Dr. Stack, but um, last year there was a bacterial leaf st uh, streak of corn, uh, Xanthomonas vesicular, uh, discovered in the United States, an African pathogen, already in four states. And when you read some of the um, internet releases, you know, I, I saw this statement, confirmation was delayed because of lack of historical research on the pathogen and limited data. Um, that is a, a recurring theme, unfortunately. And food, we've got food research, Randy Phoebus is here, looking at sugar toxin E. coli that causes 265,000 cases a year with um, 4,000 hospitalization and maybe a, um, quite a number of deaths. Um, these are all issues that we cannot ignore, but which we know about. Um, and deterrence, use of punishment as a threat to deter people from offending. 
again, not easy. Um, you know, in a broader sense, this also depends on communication and, and knowledge. Um, I think that people knowing that you have the capacity to stop these events is in itself a deterrent. Um, but for the nothing ventured, nothing gained type of perpetrators, this is not a sufficient deterrent. We need to be able to respond and, dare I say, retaliate with effective sanctions if this happens, and they need to know that. Um, good news, you have said a number of times um, we, we should move from rhetoric to action, sir. Um, this is a bipartisan issue. You're a champion for us. Um, you're well-respected, and people listen to you, and K-State, I know, is here to help move this forward. Thank you. Thank you very, very much, Dr. Higgs, for your eloquent statement and uh, your commitment that you've made your professional life to this issue. We appreciate it very much. We'll have some questions in just a moment, but in, uh, we are now delighted to have uh, Dr. Kirshner, uh, the Director of Food Protection and Defense Institute of the University of Minnesota, who's traveled a good distance to be here. Thank you for coming. Well, thank you for the opportunity. As a former DOD epidemiologist working on Homeland Security and a dairy, uh, daughter of a dairy farmer, I thank you for considering this critical issue that's often forgot. I also thank Dr. My or General Myers for allowing maroon and gold to enter the purple <laughs> campus. <laughs> thank you, sir. Uh, per the Homeland Security Presidential Directive Number 9, the Food Protection Defense Institute is one of the university-based centers of excellence in agriculture and food defense. And I would argue to say our mission is to protect your dinner. And actually, we work to protect all the foods you consume, especially those post-harvest. Over the past decade, I would say there's been significant efforts to look at our food production animals. But let us not forget the plethora of food and nutrients that you consume each day that are not produced by animals. These foods have threatened our public's health, and they serve as delivery mechanisms for weapons of mass destruction. This Christmas, Greece faced a daunting event where terrorists threatened to adulterate Coca-Cola, Unilever, and Nestle products with chlorine and hydrochloric acid while leaving the packaging intact. It took New Zealand over 10 months to identify the perpetrator that added a pesticide to infant formula and sent samples to the government and industry, threatening a larger commercial release. Our complex, open, interconnected food and agriculture critical infrastructure cannot be ignored. So for those that joined us for dinner last night, I took a moment to assess our meal. And I can assure you that you ate a global plate of ingredients oil that made up the dressing on your salad for those that chose to eat it, came likely from Turkey, Syria, Italy, Spain, and perhaps Portugal. This is a commodity that has repeatedly seen adulteration, with estimates as high as 73% of olive oil being counterfeit. In the most catastrophic case, industrial oil was substituted for food-grade oil. This resulted in the deaths of 600 Spaniards. It is estimated that 10% of the food in your grocery store has been adulterated, resulting in a 10 to $15 billion loss to industry each year. So I challenge you, next time you go to the market, look in your cart and know that potentially 10% of that is adulterated. Conservatively, the ingredients that made up the dinner last night, by my calculations this morning, were 103. 
that is 103 supply chains that we must continually protect and secure to ensure that we're feeding our citizens safe food. Today I've been asked uh, with my colleagues to present three issues related to prevention and deterrence. So let me start with the first. We must be able to understand supply chain security from the farm to retail marketplace. This is a growing problem from several perspectives. First, the increase in globalization of sourcing within our supply chains and our cross-infrastructure dependence are creating real operational and food integrity challenges that our government and most food companies are not prepared to address. The risk to the supply chain presents serious human health and economic risk for our industry and our American consuming public. Let me acknowledge this includes transportation within our food supply chains, which is an enormous source of risk to our food supply. We've seen this manifest in the rise of cargo, food cargo theft, product diversion, and adulteration of products ranging from baby formula to cereals. This creates huge brand risk and increased insurance costs for producing firm, but it also directly impacts consumer prices through increases, substandard consumer products, and the increased cost of all forms of public assistance programs, such as SNAP. Varying parts of our government and the industry own the responsibility to prevent and deter adulteration in our supply chain, yet we do not collectively talk. FDA and USDA may own regulation of food, while DHS has consequence management. The FBI has the authority to understand and investigate criminal activity, yet state health departments may individually be assessing illegal importation of pufferfish or unpasteurized camel milk without even contacting law enforcement. Secondly, the growth of technology has created vast security problems for our food supply chain, packing houses to the retail stores. Worse, the systems within our food production and supply sector are largely unmonitored and lack active security defenses. For example, the growth in cyber attacks in the food and beverage sector is astonishing. For the past two years, retail food and beverage and hospitality has been <coughs> the most targeted sector for a cyber attack. Yet the food sector is the least protected or postured for, food, for cyber defense. FDA has taken the position that cyber defense within the sector is not in their purview of responsibility. In fact, no agency has taken on the task of hardening the food sector. The food processing world is now utterly dependent upon industrial controls that are comprised of vast, largely unprotected, yet completely connected networks of all types of computer system control devices. Now these devices range from valves, pumps, flows, temperature controls for refrigeration and cooking. They include quality control systems to cleaning and inventory management. Even the small devices on our processing lines are directly linked back to their manufacturers for maintenance and updates. Most of these systems are connected to other networks and that, that are connected to the internet and routinely open, unprotected, or minimally protected. Few have even the most basic intrusion detection capability. Recent reports from cyber protection organizations such as Trustwave and CrowdStrike highlight these common shortcomings in basic cyber defense within our food system. Hack cyber systems within the food industry have already led to the malicious pickup of cargo from a warehouse or direct theft on the highways of entire shipments of food via hijacking or other forms of strong arm theft. 
These criminals are now deploying devices to counter our GPS units in our cabs and similarly in the cargo trailers. This is a very lucrative business and a growing area of crime, resulting in food being the most stolen cargo in 2014 and 2015 in the US. In most cases, the stolen food is very profitable and is reintroduced into commerce within the United States via unscrupulous wholesale distributors. In other cases, food shipment is illegally exported to another country for sale. In either case, the safety and nutritional value of these stolen products is questionable, as the cold chain or handling may not be appropriate. In a worst case scenario, a cyber attack could result in the production and distribution into commerce of a dangerously adulterated food product. <coughs> Lastly, let me highlight the sustainment of expertise, research and development, and operational support for the food and ag sector. Our center, along with the Center of Excellence here at K-State for Emerging and Zoonotic Animal Diseases, was created to provide a capability to the government and industry for protection. Specifically, my center, the Food Production and Defense Institute, addresses broad sector risks, issues, and develops novel food protection solutions that are unique and addressed nowhere else in the country. The investment in our Food Protection Institute has been significant since 2004 and has directly benefited the government and industry. The benefits to the consuming public are direct and cost-effective. This has been demonstrated numerous ways, from identification of melamine adulteration in pet food, animal feed, candy, to various <coughs> ingredient adulterations and contamination events. The consortiums created by these centers include subject matter experts that have accomplished national level critical assessments, biosurveillance capabilities, and operational support for the industry, federal, and state food agency communities. Being able to assess the risk and design mitigation strategies rapidly for events like the Ebola, uh, Ebola event, where we were asked to look at bushmeat and West African food commodities that were of significant concern is a capability that does not exist elsewhere. Knowing the dynamic threat of our food supply allows us to implement deterrence mechanisms, such as detection technology at the border to identify harmful pathogens in our ports before Americans consume the product. In this vein, let me give you a current example that I face. So I have to say this, we as Minnesotans and hockey players embrace the great one, Wayne Gretzky. <laughs> <laughs> one of his famous quotes is, I skate to where the puck is going, not to where it's been. In that vein, we created a, what we're calling a bioawareness capability, which goes beyond surveillance. We're trying to find where the puck is going. We fuse and organize big data such as political instability, weather anomalies, production reporting, crowdsourcing, and historical events to identify issues and predict where we'll have food system disruption. With this data, we can put deterrence mechanisms in place, whether it be an import alert or a spe specific testing strategy. This tool allows all those working to protect our food system to be part of the deterrent structure, yet I have no place to give this technology to, offer a service for, for those that take action. It's simply sitting at the University of Minnesota. In summary, I've been asked to offer some policy recommendations in regards to prevention and deterrence, so I have three. I believe they align with the panel's recommendations, and in some cases may highlight. First, a priority must 
be placed for broadening the interagency engagement at the national and state level on protection of our food systems against foreign manipulation, theft, and intentional adulteration. Additionally, public-private engagement within the food and ag sector must be broadened and strengthened. I would recommend the creation of a central food entity to address food and agriculture defense strategies and operations. This entity must engage the private sector. The current separation of efforts has resulted in no no committed work to advance our ability to prepare for or respond to significant food disruption. There is a significant lack of clarity on all fronts, especially with regards to the authority to prepare for and implement food defense activities that will prevent and defer, uh, deter adulteration of our nation's food supply. Secondly, we must have responsible agencies at the federal level direct to collaborate actively and very quickly on hardening our cyber systems employed within our food supply. This must be done in conjunction with the food industry. And third, we have to develop a funding mechanism to continue research and, and development of food defense efforts and provide technical reach back to federal, state, local agencies, and the food industry. This mechanism must include a prioritization schema for funding those activities that fill gaps in our nation's biodefense related to food and ag. It should not be a mechanism to fund pet projects at university levels. Efforts should be focused on significant challenges, such as vulnerability assessments of the entire food supply, to include all the interdependencies to our critical infrastructure, and plan for things like black swan events, where what if we had to determine how to domestically produce food to feed our population if our imports are significantly limited? Our food defense challenges, I would argue, are not insurmountable. However, we have to commit to action now to see improvement soon. Thank you. Well, Dr. Kirscher, thank you for a very sobering statement. I, uh, I'm going to look at my lunch a lot differently today. <laughs> I'll tell you what to eat. Please do. <laughs> and if I could just have you accompany me from here on out. That sure. would be great. As we talk about prevention and deterrence, you emphasize the importance of the need for collaboration and a public-private partnership. And as we talk about going from words to action, I can't think of anything more important than how we design that collaboration. And it presents the question once again that I've referred to a couple of times, who's in charge? How do you, how do you from your experience and from, from what you've already learned, how would you answer that question? Who should be in charge of this effort to make sure that this collaboration takes place, this public-private partnership actually is created? Could you talk a little bit more about that? Um, I'm likely a little Pollyanna-ish Pollyanna uh, being in the government for 20 years, but I would argue that we have to bring together the agencies involved in food and, and make one entity that combines with the industry. The industry is ready to participate. But if we reside and leave siloed agencies with partial responsibilities, we will not advance. There has to be a collective effort to fund both the manpower and the resources needed to look at food and ag defense. We will not do it siloed. Well, I couldn't agree more. Dr. Higgs, you, you spoke so powerfully about pathogen detection. If you had to rank order the barriers to pathogen detection today, if you had to list what, 
What is it we have to overcome to get there? How would you rank order the challenges or the barriers that exist, and how might we look at overcoming them? I, I wish I had clear, defined answers to that. Um, I mean, obviously, I think we have the technology. It's not always cheap technology. Um, it's placement of that technology. Um, and in terms of agriculture, as I, as I spoke, it, it, it's the area is vast. We can't be looking at everywhere. If we're looking for a human type attack, you know, you're going to look in urban areas. Um, an agricultural attack could happen at almost any feedlot, any, any farm in the United States and in some remote areas probably wouldn't be detected un until it had taken hold and got out of control. So we need to engage agencies just like you said um, and, and coordinate the effort and of course there is the funding issue which, which your panel um, revealed. This is not cheap, it's, in fact it's very expensive. The tests are expensive to develop, they're even more expensive to deploy and you need an authority that is working with all partners, all involved government agencies. The, the end goal should be the same for all of us to, to stop these things, but um, there are different agendas for different agencies. Um, but we need them to work together. We need to get rid of um, egos and <coughs> sort of possessiveness of, of authority and share that and share it in a logical way mm. so that we can work together. <coughs> That's the key barrier. So if I could ask you the same question I just asked Dr. Krishna, if there's one thing that we could do right now, action-wise, to improve pathogen detection, is there a one thing that comes to mind? There's so many pathogens out there that threat. Um, as, you know, the one statement I said, you know, if we knew when and where, right. we could identify how. We can't, we can't do that. Intelligence and information sharing is critical in this. And I think that the one thing that immediately springs to mind is that um, sharing of information to, to predict. Getting ahead of the game, I can't make a sports analogy, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> but um, but uh, it's true. If we have that predictive capability and the, the ability to take action, then then we can help to stop this. Mr. Parker, you make such a compelling case for improving our capacity for manufacturing vaccines and our inability at this point to come anywhere close to what is necessary to get the job done. You mentioned the Department of Agriculture and the slow response time that we've seen there. If you had to put an action plan together, say for the next two years, as we look at manufacturing and our overall need to incent the private sector in particular to address the problem more effectively, what would it look like? Uh, well, I, first off, I would uh, go back to USDA Veterinary Services. I, they, they have information now, and they, they have, in my opinion, been very proactive in seeking out uh, input and have collected information. And it's my belief that they are acting on that information. So um, the, that should, in my opinion, lead to 
a series of recommendations or actions that would result in uh, a budget uh, request. Um, agriculture, in my opinion in general, is not always first in mind when it comes to budget priorities on the federal level. I'm an unabashed Aggie. I'm University of Georgia, animal scientist, and you know, it just it, it just goes to the core of my being of what it is to be in this industry. The nobleness of being able to provide food and fiber safely to uh, our population. So In, in, in a leadership way, we need agricultural advocates in Washington to speak for the unique position that the United States is in is that we still lead in agriculture. This is something we do well. And how do we want to protect it and improve it? And to make that case not only to the president and to Congress, but to the American people. It is a strategic advantage that we own, and it's at risk. And therefore, there are some steps that we can take. Uh, Health and Human Services worked years ago on human influenza with private industry to <coughs> increase production capacity for influenza vaccines. Why not should the same thing exist for animal agriculture? I mean, we, we bring tools to the table, but they can only be put in place if there's a path and there's funding. One thing I say, Senator, I'm, I'm a layman. I'm a business manager. I do not apologize for making money. That's my job. I'm to return value to the shareholder, not just to my company, but to my clients and who I deal with. And the recognition of that dynamic to me would be very important in advancing now. I mean, we can't, we can't come back next year and talk about this. We're living on bar time. Thank you. Ken? Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. Oh, I just ahead. wanted to follow Please. up on, on that point. It, it seems that there's been an enormous effort put in through public-private partnerships into dealing with FMD, often considered the greatest threat to, to U.S. agriculture. Um, but there are a lot of other potential threats to agriculture that haven't had that investment of resources. And um, Dr. Marsh is here from Indiana, and he knows all too well what happens when there's an avian influenza outbreak. Basically, it's it's culling. That, that, that is what we do right now in, in 2017 to handle avian flu and, and other similar infectious diseases. Should, should we be in such a position in the 21st century where culling is our only option? How do we incentivize more public-private partnerships working with biotech and biopharma to create more medical countermeasures for the myriad threats um, that that our, our livestock are at risk from. Dr. Carlin, if just my experience in interacting with the commodity groups and livestock producers, they're not going to stand for culling. Now, local focal point outbreaks, maybe that is, you know, stop animal movement, local focal point control with culling, but um, the, we should have 
And I think the commodity groups are saying we want continuity of business. Yes, we're going to lose our international markets, but we've got to seek recovery of that. In the meantime, we need to support the basic structure of livestock production in the United States in the face of these events that are, that are catastrophic. Uh, and, and certainly my, my interpretation of where the USDA is with their current uh, vaccine policy and notions of, of control, culling will not be a major tool. It might be a supportive tool to go after the frank outbreak, but in the long term, no, it's continuity of business, and that does not include culling, in my opinion. Thank you. Ken. Okay, thank you. Um, my thanks to the panel for your illuminating comments um, in all these areas. Dr. Kirscher, I'd like to start with you. Um, just to, you, you talked about hardening the supply chain, the food supply chain. Uh, and I just want to put this in sort of stark dollar and cents terms. Um, so if we are talking about, let's say, plastic explosives, and you want to maintain the security of plastic explosives, you know, it's a relatively limited source of plastic explosives. Uh, it's, a, in practical terms, those the supply chain of plastic explosives can probably be fairly closely monitored. Um, when you're talking about food, and you're talking about an intentional adulteration of food, it's just, you know, food supply is everywhere, um, and it comes in pack different packaging and different forms, it's stored in different places. And the, the idea of, you, let's say you have a perpetrator who decides either for sort of traditional terrorism reasons to make a statement, um, a political statement decides to, like any terrorist attack, adulterate some food, or somebody who wants to uh, try to damage a particular macaroni and cheese company and adulterates a few boxes of macaroni and cheese to then cause a public panic and then cause a downturn in sales, it seems very difficult to harden the supply chain sufficiently to actually prevent that. Um, too many places where uh, boxes of macaroni and cheese will be left in a warehouse would be easy to get into, um, or on a truck or at a store. So I guess my long way of asking this question is, when you talk about hardening, are you really talking about making sure that there are fences and locks and that kind of thing? Or is the money better spent in sort of regular testing, monitoring, so that while we can't lock up every box of macaroni and cheese in the country, we do have a process in place that makes sure that a sufficient percentage of the food is tested and monitored so that if there is something, it's caught quickly. In fact, I, Dr. Gibbs, I think the same point as you. You talked, you made the very apt analogy to you know, the car theft situation, that the car thief isn't going to go to a locked lot with, with lights and everything. However, their cattle and... In, and pigs in hundreds of thousands of places around this country, they can't all be protected. So um, how would you recommend, if you're the president or Congress or OMB and trying to look at this issue in the food supply context, how would you recommend them focusing on the sort of the hardening versus the monitoring and testing? Sure. So I think we've gotten really good at guns, gates, and guards. So mm -hmm. I would, um, I don't know that I have a full check mark there, but that's what we focused on initially. And so now we need to look more at risk stratification. 
what is most at risk? So we need the intelligence community and we need historical evidence of what's been adulterated in the past and what is likely to be adulterated. And we can do that. We can look, we have risk strategies and assessment ways of looking at what food potentially could produce a viable disruption, right? So we're continually looking at where to predict that disruption and then understanding food processes. If something has what we would call a kill step where it kills a pathogen, then we're gonna worry less about that. So how do we start looking at what's coming into our ports, what already exists within our country, and that are high risk comparatively to everything else that we already have a mitigation strategy in place? Those risk assessments, looking at vulnerability, putting mitigation steps in place, all require effort for us collectively to look at it. Information that sets at FBI is not necessarily shared with other regulators. DHS has consequence man management and it has ENVIS. ENVIS doesn't get all the data that exists that we know about where there are risks in the system. We know research has been done by terrorist organizations about what should they attempt to adulterate because we have no gun, no gate, no guard, and no methodology to kill a pathogen. We need to bring that together into a fusion capability of sorts that is, has representation from not only the government, but from industry and the academy. July 1, our centers don't answer the phone anymore because there's not continued funding. There has been a huge investment in these centers of excellence, and, and I'm not arguing that we continue to fund them the way they are, but I have 50 universities in my consortium that can answer calls to help if we've got an issue or help with risk stratification. So if I were to put some money together or talk to OMB or go to the president, I would say we have to create an entity that starts to look at risk both come inside and potentially coming in through our ports. That means intelligence, that means food safety, that means food engineers, epidemiologists, public health, and business continuity. Dr. Gibbs, you want to address that? Well, I, that, that was a, a great example. Um, and we saw the same scenario with, with West Nile. The Center for Disease Control got a $50 million award, I think it was $50 million, um, to establish uh, centers of excellence for training in vector-borne diseases. But after three or four years, um, you know, I was the director of one of those centers. I think we had like 14 students that produced 60 or 70 publications in four years. Very productive. A lot of those people are still in the field, but quite a few of them have left because they weren't sustained. And we finished those centers, you know, very sadly without continuation of funding. And without solving the, the problem of West Nile or a new vector-borne diseases. And then, then we've seen chikungunya, we've seen Zika, and it's the same story again. Um, so it's a huge investment, but it's a very strategic and worthwhile investment in these, in these centres. And, you know, we have one here at K-Stent. We have, uh, have CSAT here. Um, getting all that expertise, getting the knowledge and the information sharing, and then dare I say, abandoning those, seems a tragedy. It does not seem like a forward-thinking um, strategy to, to help this country. Mr. Parker, if I may, um, I want to sort of put this in, in simple terms that I can understand. Um, so you're, you made a very strong point about, you know, the need to have sufficient vaccines stockpiled 
to tide us over in the event of a foot and mouth disease outbreak until you can then do a surge uh, production and, and address it more comprehensively. Um, so uh, can you give us a little more color on sort of how, let's, let's say we, the status quo remained and we only had the limited stockpile we have now for a few of the expected strains. And there were an outbreak of one of those expected strains. And so we didn't have enough stockpiled to really address it in the first instance. How long would it take for that surge capacity to, to come into play? And obviously, you know, this is, I look at it, and I think many people and lawmakers and, and policy folks look at this in the animal context very differently than the human context, right? Because, you know, gosh, we don't have the stockpile for, to deal with anthrax, uh, and it takes X amount of time. That's X amount of human lives. Obviously, we want to protect animal lives, but it's a different sort of value judgment. So how long would it take, or can, can that even be quantified before we know what the outbreak is, before you could, let's say, have enough to protect the, the pig, you know, population or, you know, our livestock? Yes, there's, there are ways to get to that. Uh, but keep in mind, uh, you know, I work for a global company. Yes, I'm an American citizen, and I'm going to argue vigorously on behalf of the United States if that were to happen as the business manager to get my place in the industrial queue. But our capacity is already spoken for, for other countries. Now, one point on that, the reduction of FMD virus globally should only help the United States. While I would like to think that our company would shut off the other customer and say, yes, we're going to turn it all to the United States. That's not reality. But there is a recognition that North American needs are very important. That goes up to the highest levels within our company, not just my former. You see, I'm in a bit of a transition now. We used to be owned by the French, now we're owned by the Germans, so I've got to start <laughs> speaking German this year. And I'm making those kinds of arguments. Now, Senator Dasher, I started out with Merck 40 years ago. The company has changed around me, but I've only had one job interview my entire life, so I've had several companies that have owned me, and I've stayed with the same company. So I'm prepared to make those arguments, but again, you're dealing with a corporate entity that is global in responsibility, and we have commitments. However, there is recognition, and we're making progress to try to, to bring the appropriate level of commitment from the United States. If the, if the United States wants to go down this path, we're ready to act today. I have been asked by my senior management, what assurances can you get? And we'll build a new facility. I apologize. I've got to go. I've got to fly. <laughs> I, I, I really do apologize. You're excused totally, Mr. Parker. Thank, Thank you. you very much for making the effort to come. Asha, do you have further questions? Oh, I do. Um, Dr. Kircher, one of my close colleagues, uh, you mentioned the, the idea of creating a new entity, uh, taking the pieces and parts of various other federal and maybe other levels of government uh, and putting them together to create a new entity. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> As you know, historically we don't, we don't 
tend to do a whole lot of that in the United States, um, with the exception recently of the Department of Homeland Security, not a small entity. Uh, but there's a model there, I suppose. Um, but another option that's often utilized by the United States government is to create some kind of coordination center. Uh, we've done it for export enforcement, for example, um, where the various federal agencies come together. And if there's a private sector aspect to it, they're pretty good about pulling them in. Not so sure about pulling in state and local territorial and tribal, but we've seen the other. Uh, what would your what would your feeling be about that? If we couldn't if we couldn't create a new governmental entity uh, or governmental organization, um, do you think that that would be a, a valuable thing, or would it just be a whole bunch of people coming together and still operating in silos, but sitting in one space in the Washington metropolitan area? I absolutely think that's a viable option. And I think what I would argue in that case is to give um, one agency some authority to help implement that coordination groups, either their recommendations or their information. Um, we've long argued for a new way to think about biosurveillance and be able to produce back to the agencies, whether they're uh, federal or state or, or local, um, an ability to share information, although we could never find the right mechanism. So I think a coordination center would be fine. I think it has to be resourced. We have to put a commitment and, um, and some requirements behind our agencies filling those positions. We have to have all represented with seats in, you know, butts in chairs. It can't be just a, uh, a formality. We have to have actual FDA, USDA, CDC, FBI representation in this coordination group. Mm -hmm. um, I think it is, we've been challenged many times to do interagency efforts. So again, making sure the resources, both from a manpower and uh, a financial model are there with the authority to implement this coordination groups, whether their recommendations or their efforts will be critical. Okay, thank you. And um, <clears throat> Dr. Higgs, one of the uh, things that has come up in discussion with uh, Senator Daschle and uh, Ken Weinstein, one of their questions uh, earlier this week as we were preparing was, um, how many BSL-4 labs do we have? And what is everybody doing? And, you know, we do seem to have a lot. In the United States, of course, you've seen some of the, the stories about the proliferation of BSL-4 laboratories, uh, different agencies, different departments funding different things. Yeah. Um, I, I don't want you to give us a number of BSL-4 laboratories, but it, it, it led to another conversation about who's doing research on what in which laboratory, and does everybody laboratory know, every laboratory know who, who all is doing what? There's a connection, of course, to the select agent program, where theoretically the two departments that are in charge of the select agent program know where the select agents are, and so therefore know what research is being done on those. Um, what is what is your sense of that? Is there enough knowledge flowing around as to who is doing what, so there isn't too much overlap? Um, putting aside notions of competition, and um, what would you say or what would you recommend in terms of making sure that gaps are filled and we don't have everybody everybody working on you know three uh, diseases all at the same time, leaving everything else off on the side? Okay, a complex question. Um, so we have a number of BSL fours run by different um, agencies and groups, NIH. Uh, private universities, um, Center for Disease Control, and so forth. Um, they are well regulated. What we're missing, and this is the, the great importance of uh, NBAF, National Biological Defense Facility, is we have no real capability to work on 
real livestock, large animals with BSL-4 agents. And um, that, you know, we hear about MBAP as a replacement for Plum Island, but it's much more. Um, it is adding substantially a new capability to the US that we desperately need. Um, most of the projects in, in, in these laboratories are um, extramurally funded or funded, for example, by NIH. Mm -hmm. So there is oversight to um, try and avoid duplication. I would say some duplication is not a bad thing because there is, by duplication, there's verification that your results and your data are um, independently valid. So that you know, um, sure. you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. You want to to spread that around. Um, I think there's good coordination, but there is um, a significant lack of. Of, of capability and of course other countries have level fours as, as well with whom we have good relationships there's um, uh, sort of an alliance of BSL4 directors I know uh, a number of those in different countries and they're our partners so the capacity is limited but it is growing thank you um, and on the international side, you, you mentioned just now the, uh, the this alliance. Does this uh, international alliance include, um, for example, our friends in Russia and other countries that have BSO four laboratories that we don't necessarily consider our, on our allied list? Um, I don't know whether we, we have much of a, a relationship with some of those Russian labs like uh, Novosibirsk and so, mm -hmm. so forth. We certainly have great relationships with the labs in, in Germany, in Australia, in Canada. Um, and up until the um, uh, approval of, of NBAF, I mean, the, our research, our BSL-4, until that's completed, our BSL-4 livestock research is done by those partners. Um, our research may not be their priority, and they're busy places. So uh, having our own facility is very important. Mm -hmm. Good. That's it for me, sir. Thank you, Asha. Ellen, do you have further questions? I just had one follow-up question for Dr. Kircher. I was really interested in the statistic that you said uh, it's estimated that 10% of food in the grocery store is adulterated, and that's certainly far higher than I, as, as a layperson, would, would have expected. And um, is, is the majority of that imported? And if so, is that because so much of our food is imported or because we have such good food regulations here in the United States? I'm, I'm trying to figure out how we better protect that imported food supply because I think it's a really tough nut to crack. Sure. Um, so you're all welcome for that 10% comment. I know you'll all think about me when you go grocery shopping. Um, so that 10% is coming from those products that we've found. They're not as labeled. Now, that 10% could be a, a, a plethora of things. It could be um, the label is incorrect. We had um, one company who had um, misspelled um, one of their ingredients, and then we found counterfeit pro uh, product because the uh, perpetrators spelled it correctly on their label. Um, <clears throat> you know, we found a gentleman in China who makes a synthetic egg completely, the yolk, the white, and the shell, and they sell them by the dozen. I mean, it's just pervasive in our system. I mean, if there's any food you all don't want to eat, let me know and I'll give you a story. Um, so I think what we really need to do again is go back to this um, risk stratification. Where have we historically seen things? What do we know can be easily adulterated? Where do we not have good quality testing? Because that's where we should look. 
I also know that when disaster happens anywhere in the world, for whatever reason, I can give you a scenario of how we should start thinking about food. So if we've got flooding in Thailand and we start seeing some disease coming in on shrimp, I already know where to start thinking about those import strategies and where in the U.S. we're going to see that and how to add additional manpower to six ports so that we can look shrimp differently. When we had the tsunami and uh, (coughs) Fukushima, this is big brain science that I didn't do, right? The bounce back of the wave took out scallops in Chile. Well, that's a two-year harvest cycle. It's not rocket science. We shouldn't see Chilean sea scallops for two years. So let's put an import alert on, and anyone seeing sea scallops will know they're probably lying. That's probably counterfeit. When Ebola happened, the first thing I thought of was cocoa. What's happening? Well, you know what? We went and looked in the index right away that we maintain, and people cut cocoa with corn husk (coughs) and arrowroot and dirt. So for three months, we should inspect cocoa at a higher rate because the likelihood that people are going to try to make money because we saw a surge in prices is greater. So there are all kinds of there are all kinds of signals and precursors and triggers to help us figure out this 10% and mitigate it. But again, we have to work cooperatively and we have to get to a place where these food protection and defense activities can collectively be owned and accomplished. Right now, they sit across our agencies. If I have to deal with cheese pizza, I talk to FDA. If that pizza has pepperoni, I talk to USDA. I mean, come on, right? We need to find a better way. And I would hate to say foods are, but hey, let's say foods are. We need some way to think defensively about our infrastructure. Thank you. If I could just follow up on that, Um, that 10% number caught my attention too and um so this just a definitional question so Mm -hmm. in terms of adulteration Mm -hmm. adulterated food that label or that definition Mm -hmm. would include not only food that has something as a dangerous quality right but but also economic right but also just something it could be like you said Mm -hmm. seafood that is held holds itself out as being a particular type of seafood it's a different type but doesn't necessarily threaten one's health that would that would be encompassed in that definition of adulteration and therefore within that 10%. Absolutely. I'm just looking for some hope that (laughs) one out of 10 of the things I see in the market aren't going to kill me. Amy, can you also uh, just jump on that real quick? You know, you have, we're throwing around a number of terms, adulteration, uh, counterfeit, um, you know, and so forth. Can you cover those? So when we say contamination, we mean naturally occurring. When I say adulteration, we say there's an intentional component. And in that intentional component, terrorism, sabotage, which includes disgruntled employees, and man, we have enough examples of that, and then economically motivated. So those that are trying to make money somehow throughout our food system. So the economic is quite large and concerning just from a brand damage perspective, Um And so regarding that 10%, and I'm so glad you brought up seafood. I mean, when we think about even economic adulteration, right, there are those things, you know, Dr. Oz loves to call and say, let's talk about lemon juice because that's his platform. Well, we dilute it with, people dilute it with water. It's not a public health consequence necessarily. But when we talk about seafood, yes, we have over icing of frozen fish to increase weight so it costs you more but we have an incredible amount of substitution of species that is 
unbelievably affecting our global population for people who have allergens or for foods that create GI syndromes. Um, just this past year, we had um, a, a poor crop of cumin. And so what did they do? They wanted to boost the color, so they added peanut protein. Think about if you know anyone with an allergen and it's undeclared. I mean, we got to get to the mom blogs, right? I mean, this is an outcry. I mean, I don't have, I'm not a parent of a kid with allergies, but it is paralyzing to think that you might put a spice on dinner where you never expected peanut. That was an economic motivation that has catastrophic public health consequences. Dr. Kirscher, could you talk just along these lines about the need and the level of current public education and the extent to which anyone can empower themselves more effectively to be aware of these challenges and to be more, uh, more sensitive as, as one walks through the marketplace uh, and selects their food. How, how does one become more educated? And, and, and how can they become more empowered? I, we, the media asks me this question all the time. What do we, the consumer, do? And I think it's hard because you're at the end of the supply chain. Everybody else ahead of you has to do their job. But a few things. One, you know, we tell people to buy from reputable sources. Know where your food is coming from. Well, it's an extreme example. Don't buy sirloin steak off the back of a truck for two bucks on the corner of K-State. I don't know if they actually do that, sir. <laughs> <laughs> you know, n buy, f <laughs> buy food from where we think it's produced. Read your label. I challenge you to all go home and read extra virgin olive oil label that you have in your pantry right now. It probably says um, produced from, and it gives you five countries. You can't actually tell where the olives are from. Don't buy food from places it probably isn't made. You know, we also have some interesting tariff structures. The number one import site for the U.S. for cocoa is where? Canada. There are no cocoa beans grown in Canada. But the way we've structured taxes and tariffs are that they import it, add enough value to cocoa beans that it now looks like a product of Canada because f over 50% of the origin or value is now related to that Canadian production. So. You know, buy what you buy reputable brands. Buy, pay the amount of money food should cost, and really challenge. You know, challenge your congressmen, challenge your health departments to really keep you aware of what's happening. So we need to have, we need to demand a better understanding of where our food is grown. And I don't think, you know, I go into schools and talk to kids, they don't know where their food comes from. And I have to tell you, if I read some labels, I can't tell them where their food comes from. Thank you. Dr. Higgs? Did you oh, yeah. Certainly, we, <laughs> thank you for that. We certainly have had plenty of rice made of plastic, too, just to hmm. continue with the analogies. <laughs> Dr. Higgs, you wanted to make a comment? No, I was, I was just, oh, okay. Yeah. okay, very good. I, I would like to ask one question. Um, the panel came up with 33 recommendations and then the following report uh, came up with a realization that those had not been um, forcefully put into practice. Um, what next? 
Am I allowed to ask that question? Absolutely. <laughs> no, absolutely. Well, what next is I think we have a new administration. We have the potential for new emphasis and energy. Uh, our hope is to is to release a second series of, of recommendations by the end of the year, but we're going to be putting as much emphasis as we can, as I said, on on action, and on organization, on response in Congress, on working with uh, the new leadership in this administration in an effort to elevate the prioritization of a lot of these issues and to energize, if we will, the, the federal government in particular. Uh, but. Uh, you know, this is going to take a concerted effort. It's going to be important that it's not just the Blue Ribbon Study Panel that is calling for this, but that we have allies, as as Congressman Marshall has, has certainly indicated today, uh, working with us to ensure that we create more of a an action agenda. But let me ask my colleagues if they'd like to add to that. Ken, would you like to add anything? <laughs> uh, one of the things we, we discovered when we put out our first report um, <clears throat> was that people people read it, they understood it. Um, we didn't get a lot of people come back and say, these are, these are outrageous recommendations, we don't understand. But what we also found was, despite the fact that our action items are really very, very clear in, in terms of identifying exactly which people or which positions need to execute something, what piece of legislation might, not, might need to be amended or, or, or added or subtracted and so forth, despite that, there is still a lack of understanding on how to get beyond that level. Uh, what looks very straightforward to us uh, was not necessarily something that the people who need to execute even knew how to execute. So we may not uh, we may add some recommendations, but we also are adding more granularity to the how. How do you do such and such thing? Um, and, uh, you know, just as one example, we keep talking about funding. Um, so if we made a recommendation that something should re receive additional funding, well, it's an easy thing to say, but it's a complicated situation. The OMB has a role, and appropriations have a role, and the authorizers have a role, and that's just Congress. Never mind all the other people and agencies that have a role. Um, I, we want to take some steps to uh, articulate those further, um, uh, articulating process and procedure uh, and connecting dots for people who've never connected them before to see that our recommendations are are better implemented. Okay. If I may, uh, Dr. Higgs, very good question. And, um, you know, it's, uh, we're all, always thinking, what, what are the next steps that need to be pursued? Um, but so as I said in my earlier remarks, foundational to this is having the necessary leadership and coordination of the overall effort. And this is a, a threat that, that needs to be handled by all levels of government, but the reality is the federal government needs to take a stronger leadership role within the federal government and within the whole nation. And that's why um, two of our recommendations, I think, are so important. One, that, that there be a national strategy, which now has been legislatively mandated, which is very important. I think that is a nice, that effort will be a channel by which we can pursue some of the other recommendations. But also that within the federal government there be some place in the federal government, and we've recommended that it be, as you said, Dr. Kircher, that it be with the vice president and that there be a focus on uh, having that structure put in place because absent that, just as we saw after 9-11 where there was a need for all the different players to start working together and sort of marching in step, I don't think we're going to get that in the bio threat area. 
And, you know, after 9-11, it was the president himself who really oversaw that effort to try to force the coordination mm. among all the relevant agencies. I mean, literally, President Bush had briefings six days a week, every morning, both to get intelligence, but also to force the, um, the building of a counterterrorism effort that would meet the threat. I think while we can't expect that of the president in the bio area, I think we need that. And that's why we have been so forceful in recommending that it be the vice president. Well, it's a little orthodox, but to be the vice president to do that. And once we get that coordination, which is foundational, I think the, the lesser recommendations or the subordinate recommendations are more likely to be adopted. Okay. If there are no further questions or comment, uh, we'll take a break now for lunch. Um, we will return at uh, 1 o'clock here to take the second panel. One fifteen, I guess. Um, is that yes. right? One fifteen. So thank you very much to both our panelists for just an excellent presentation. Thank you. Have her and appreciate uh, uh, all that she's done in the last couple of days to make our visit so successful. Uh, Dr. Ali Khan, the Dean of the College of Public Health at the University of Nebraska Medical Center, and Dr. Kelly Lechtenberg, the President of the Midwest Veterinary Services Central States Research Center, the Veterinary and Medical Bio Biomedical Research Center. Uh, we thank all three of you for being here, and we'll begin with Dr. Beckham. Well, and thank you, panel, for having me here today. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to provide some thoughts about surveillance and detection. And Would you mind pulling the microphone just a little closer, sure. please? Thank you. Is that better? That's better. Great. So I don't want to spend a lot of time rehashing some things that we heard this morning, and I'm going to just talk a little bit about our agricultural systems. And obviously the things that make them vulnerable, um, the things that make them robust, are also the things that make them vulnerable, whether it's to a natural or intentional uh, introduction of a biological agent. And we know that threats to our agricultural system come to us in a variety of forms. And this morning we heard about foot and mouth disease, we've heard about avian influenza, and then we heard a little bit about PED. Um, but we know that they can come to us whether they're transboundary animal, emerging, and or zoonotic disease threats, and I'll talk a little bit about each of those. And we also know that they can result in great morbidity or mortality, a uh, threat to our public sector, or have a potential to cause catastrophic economic consequences to our industries. And so you've heard a little bit about that this morning, too. But many of these agents also do not require weaponization, and they can be easily obtained and they exist naturally in areas where we have terrorist groups such as the Islamic State, Al-Qaeda, Boko Haram, and others that intend to harm the U.S. So not only that, but the risk of emerging infectious and or zoonotic diseases continues to threaten our animal, plant, and public health sectors. And in fact, it's estimated that over 75% of emerging pathogens are zoonotic, and those zoonotic agents are two times more likely to be associated with emerging disease events. So we know that we've been free of foot and mouth disease since 1929. We don't have African swine fever or Rift Valley fever, um, but we are increasingly at risk for introduction of these diseases and many emerging diseases. And we've seen and in publications the economic consequences that could be had from foot and mouth disease. And a recent study at Kansas State University indicated that just in the Midwest, we could lose up to $188 billion to our livestock industries and our allied industries if we had an introduction of foot and mouth disease. But in addition to these publications that highlight the economic and social impacts, 
Um, we've also recently um, experienced and witnessed the incursion of porcine epidemic diarrhea virus in 2013, high path AI that you heard Dr. Marsh talk about in 2015, and last but certainly not least, Ebola virus disease in our public health sector in 2014. So these incursions uh, certainly demonstrate our vulnerability to newly emerging and re-emerging pathogens. So in the case of PED, the industry lost 10% or 7 million of the piglets that were born to sows during the outbreak. During the high path AI outbreak, the U.S. poultry population resulted in approximately 7.5 million or 7.5% of the U.S. turkey population and 4.1 million of the commercial chicken population being depopulated. So the total indemnity cost for the outbreak was approximately $191 million. So, but it wasn't really until 2014 when the Ebola virus outbreak occurred in the U.S. where the meaning of the term One Health took on new significance. So we talk a lot about the agricultural agents and, and the economic consequences, but when you start talking about zoonotic agents and the potential to public health, you're in a whole different realm. And I was personally involved in the Ebola task force in Texas and was involved in helping take care of the dog, Bentley. Uh, during the outbreak. So it was really during this outbreak when we had that issue that we began to realize the serious gaps that we have in our system. So we know that we have a lack of scientific evidence to support informed decision making during that outbreak. We had a lack of available training for veterinarians, state and local animal health workers, first responders, and our medical counterparts um, as well. We had a lack of policies and procedures that would define appropriate handling of contaminated medical waste, and there was a lack of available scientific evidence that could support informed development of policies and procedures for appropriate handling or care of potentially exposed companion animal and or livestock. So really, it was during that outbreak that the term One Health came to the forefront for, for myself and the majority of the veterinary and the medical community. So during that, we had veterinarians emailing us, asking us how they were going to handle cases if they came into their clinics. And at that time, there were no really good policies or procedures available for us to give them guidance. For many of the diseases that threaten our industries, we do lack the medical countermeasures for early detection, identification, response, and recovery. And we have made significant advances uh, in the U.S. with the licensure of the foot, first foot and mouth disease vaccine that can be manufactured here in the U.S., and definitely the validation and deployment of molecular assays uh, that are capable of supporting early detection and response to the National Animal Health Laboratory Network. But in order for us to more effectively detect, identify, characterize, respond to, and control um, and recover from an outbreak of a known or emerging pathogen, we still do have a lot to accomplish. So we heard this morning a lot about vaccines for foot and mouth disease and medical countermeasures, and we know that we have a lot to do there. But along with vaccines, we must also develop and validate new diagnostic technologies that can help us detect and identify both known and emerging pathogens. We must develop in collaboration with our industries and our stakeholders policies and procedures that can allow for an appropriate response to emerging disease affecting our industries. And for sure, we must work closely with our end user stakeholders and first responders to develop a robust, integrated biosurveillance system that is capable of capturing and analyzing data on animal, human, and wildlife health. Now, this biosurveillance system must also simultaneously provide useful information and incentives to encourage data owner and participation. 
We must work to develop data elements and standards that can be used across the agriculture and public health sectors and simultaneously work to develop policies that will allow for efficient sharing of data while working to protect the confidentiality of our data owners. We must work to identify incentives and provide rewards for participation for early disease reporting among our agricultural and public health sectors. And we must prepare our fresh responders, veterinary workforce, and our medical counterparts through robust training programs in early recognition, disease response, personal protection, and biosafety. So we cannot simply discuss One Health anymore, but we must embrace it. And in our surveillance systems, we have to have surveillance systems that can share information across from the animal to the human health sector. And we need to have surveillance systems that aren't just agent or disease-based, but are more broadly syndromic-based so that you can get on the early side of detection for these emerging diseases. And not only that, you have to have robust algorithms and epidemiologists that are available to support early alerts and understand what those alerts from such a system, what that would be telling them. And those individuals have to be available to support our state animal health officials. You heard Dr. Marsh talk this morning. There has to be um, some cooperation between the federal government, academia, and the states to support the states in the utilization of that information. So um, in, in a nutshell for surveillance and detection, uh, in 2012, there was a national strategy for biosurveillance that was put forth. Um, the problem was is that the implementation to that national strategy was never put forth after that. So uh, my, one of my recommendations would be to take that national strategy for biosurveillance, which was really uh, quite a robust strategy, and move that into the implementation phase. So current, like I mentioned, current systems and surveillance and agricultural disease and agent-specific focused, um, and, in, and they lack the, they're limited in the disease scope, and they lack the ability to provide up-to-date and real-time situational awareness. And so the technologies exist today that we can put in the hands of our veterinarians and our producers. And you heard Dr. Marsh harken back to when he got that produ producer's call that said, my birds ain't doing right. Those are the kinds of calls and things that we need to be capturing through real-time surveillance systems, through the technologies that we have today, whether they're iPhones or iPads, linking back to a data system where people can see alerts and then properly alert people to different things that are going on within the country. Um, that surveillance system um, and the implementation of that is going to require engagement with our producers and our veterinarians and our doctors and our clinics out there so that we can integrate that and provide them some incentive for participating in that. We have to be able to give them data back so that they get some useful information out of it and that will encourage them to participate to show them the value. So we have to give them those incentives. So I would encourage that public-private partnership continuing to work with our state animal health officials and epidemiologists, um, not to mention, as Dr. Marsh mentioned, uh, having the labs able to send their information as well into databases and that information being readily available to our state animal health officials. We need to continue to promote uh, the technology development in those systems. We also need to continue to support the National Animal Health Laboratory Network um, and our reference laboratories by validating assays and providing the policies for use of those assays. We need to develop policies and assays that, Dr. as Dr. Marsh mentioned, that we can move closer to the pen side and support more advanced testing. 
The other thing that I would say that we need to do is we need to support the secure food supply plans, which also rely on premise identification, so that you have the ability to do traceability during disease outbreaks and tie those systems and the secure food supply plans with our surveillance um, opportunities and technologies so that we have all of that information in one database or we can link that information and marry movements with what's happening on the animal health side. So we do need to continue to support the secure food supply plans and their implementation, and through that encourage states to develop uh, more robust premise ID and encourage their producers uh, to report to uh, register through that system. And then we also need to, and this this is certainly something I think we cannot look overlook. We have to continue to support the global health security agenda. Because although we can have the best and most robust surveillance systems here at home, we need to be looking abroad for these agents as well. And through developing capacities in other countries and making sure that we know what's going on on the ground in other places, it will better prepare us to look for those same things in the U.S. And so an example of that would be PED or PERS that you might see uh, in a foreign country circulating. You can get an advance on that and understand whether your diagnostic tests are actually effective against those strains that are currently circulating. So I would encourage us not to just think nationally, but also continue to think globally and invest in these global initiatives as that's going to help us have a better understanding of what's going on um, at a global level. And then lastly, um, but certainly not least, and then I'll wrap it up here quickly, is that we're building a $1.25 billion facility here in Manhattan, Kansas. And so our ability to do things here that we haven't been able to do before, like study Ebola and have those tests validated um, prior to an outbreak, all of that's going to exist very soon. Um, but the fact that we're building a $1.25 billion facility, we need to make sure that we fund the programs that are going to go in that facility so that our scientists can continue to do the great things that they do and grow their programs and expand those programs and continue to work with their state partners and academia and the industry to develop the countermeasures and the surveillance programs and the One Health concept that we all know that we need to do with this facility. Thank you. Thank you very much. Dr. Beckham for the excellent comments, and uh, we have a number of questions, but we'll take the statements from each of our panelists and then enter into the questions. Dr. Khan. Thank you very much, Senator Daschle and members of the panel. Um, I'm going to share, uh, share some thoughts from two separate perspectives. So the first perspective is a career responding to these infectious diseases and prior uh, to leaving CDC, I was responsible for a $1.5 billion program that made sure Americans were protected from all public health threats, including these zoonotic diseases and bioterrorism. And more recently, as the dean of the College of Public Health, uh, we have the National Ebola Training Center with the responsibility of making sure that our national public health system, especially our healthcare preparedness system, is ready for Ebola and other emerging um, infectious diseases, and I personally responded to Ebola for three months uh, two years ago in Sierra Leone. Um, it sounds like earlier this morning you dealt with not just the animal and human consequences of zoonoses, but also the significant political socioeconomic consequences of those diseases. That's true as you bridge over from the zoonoses into the zoonotic diseases. The classic bridge is obviously BSE that started off as a zoonoses, and then we started to see diseases, disease amongst humans, and the significant not just human and animal impact, but obviously the political, social, economic impact. And then most recently, Ebola is an excellent example, and keeping 
with this One Health theme, my comments will mirror yours. <laughs> they should mirror yours if we really do believe in a One Health uh, theme. But, you know, the Ebola outbreak was, I believe, 11, 12,000 unnecessary deaths in West Africa and really showed deficiencies in our global health security system and how this disease was able to, number one, propagate in these three West African countries for disease that we very much know how to prevent, um, and followed by, obviously, uh, tr uh, transport uh, transportation and translocation into other countries. Uh, I don't want to forget deliberate threats in here, so maybe earlier today somebody talked about glanders and use of glanders in World War I. No. Um, and, then thoughts of use, uh, this, and then thoughts of use of glanders for other uh, purposes. We've, you've probably discussed pur purposeful use of FMD, but I want to remind people that for many of the bioterrorism diseases, classically that we would think of bioterrorism, so brucellosis would be on my list, and coxiella, which causes Q fever, would be on my list. Besides the human impact, if there's spillover in the animal population, there would be animal consequences of the use of those uh, diseases. Uh, our number one threat to the health security of this nation remains a zoonotic disease, likely influenza, obviously, uh, would be, continue to be the number one threat. Now, that said, uh, I can say definitively that internationally and domestically, uh, we are not ready for the next major pandemic. That was laid out, I believe, quite nicely in the Blue Ribbon Study Panel. It was laid out very nicely by uh, the Trust for America Health report that came out uh, late in December, ready or not, and lots of other similar reports. And I'll give you some data to support that. But let me sort of talk a little bit about surveillance and response activities. And at both, at both global and domestic levels, uh, uh, a disease anywhere is a disease everywhere as far as I'm concerned. And it's impossible to talk about just the US. You really have to think globally about infectious diseases if you're going to make sure that you prepare the US for infectious diseases. And I'd much rather take care of it somewhere else than it ever finding its way here into Kansas or uh, Nebraska. So WHO and FAO and other organizations have a global lead for preparedness-related activities. Their backbone for that work is a legally binding document called the International Health Regulations. Because of SARS, another zoonotic disease, by the way, uh, uh, that was the impetus for the new set of our international health uh, regulations. And we've been fortunate or unfortunate, depend on how you look at it, based on what happened with Ebola, that people have sort of understood why we really need to support the global health security agenda, which is slowly picking up and I hope will be continued uh, in the new uh, administration. Domestically, there are a number of systems, both for animals-related uh, surveillance uh, and U.S. Uh, and human-related surveillance. Um, there's a nice combination group that looks specifically at influenza, the North American Plan for Animal and Pandemic Influenza Diseases as sort of that interface between what's going on between humans and animals. And there's numerous coalitions. The one I got the other day was the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation, which is looking at vaccines uh, and other diagnostics, and it may have been discussed earlier today uh, during your conversations. Coming to the United States, uh, a critical question we got asked and continue to get asked at CDC is how prepared are you? 
And we actually have metrics to that. It's called the National Health Security Index. It's been in place for the last three years. We know our score is 6.7 on a scale of 10 with an increase. And uh, when we first created it three years ago, I said the index itself isn't as meaningful as the trend. So the trend is we've gone up 3.6% in three years. So number one, 6.7 is not acceptable for a nation uh, that spends what it does on health security. Uh, and we need to do better with the existing resources we have, without a doubt, and obviously find additional resources to address the gaps. Uh, and when we look at health security from a um, data-driven way, we're looking at surveillance systems, community planning, incident and information management, healthcare delivery, countermeasures, and environmental and occupational health. Uh, and we do best with a score of 8.4 in um, incident and information management. So nowadays when I say to my public health and animal health colleagues, incident command system, national incident management system, EOC, they know what I'm talking about at least. So I think we've helped, the, we fixed the language there on how we respond together. But there's a lot to do with the elements of that surveillance and detection to respond. Uh, and that sort of brings up the existing challenges as we think about our human-based surveillance systems and our animal-based um, surveillance and detection systems, and how do we make sure that they're prepared for natural infectious diseases, which worry me a lot, pandemic influenza, and for obviously cohort and overt agroterrorism-related uh, activities. We currently lack a reportable list of animal diseases in, in domestic and wild animals, uh, which is unlike which is uh, different from the U.S., where we, from, from human health, where do we do have a notifiable disease uh, list for um, humans. Uh, we still do not do very well, and I'll just tell you in my human health domain, without even adding in the animal domain, to really fuse sources of information from multiple places and put it together to get a sense of what's going on in our communities, make sure we have that coordination with law enforcement that would be necessary for, for bioterrorism in the human health case. So that's just the difficulties on the human health side, let alone trying to link that to the animal health side and putting that all um, Altogether, there's also, as you heard, lots of issues around vaccination, medical countermeasures, and diagnostics that have not been resolved uh, currently, including how do you differentiate naturally occurring from um, uh, deliberate diseases and vaccinated animals versus non-vaccinated animals, and all the necessary training that we need to make sure of the public health workforce and the veterinary workforce to recognize these diseases, make sure they can um, report them and people are adequately trained to respond. Uh, I was asked to provide two to three specific suggestions. Um, so my two to three specific suggestions are leadership, will, and resources. So leadership, um, globally, I believe that at, we need a UN Undersecretary for Health um, that can work across the various domains and recognize that health-related issues are not something that's just a World Health Organization or an FAO responsibility. It's a political level of responsibility with the highest levels of government, which is what the UN specifically is charged with. And that could deal with the next pandemic influenza. It could deal with climate change, all sorts of other issues that are uh, health-related. 
And I believe we need to do the same thing in the United States. We have excellent individuals across the federal space who are interested in these issues. There still isn't the degree of coordination that I believe is necessary to make sure, number one, we get the most money for our buck, but that gaps are recognized and addressed appropriately. And having something like a special advisor for health security um, I think is important at the White House, at, right out of the White House level. And even better, if possible, for that person to have some oversight or some influence on how budgets are moved around uh, or compiling a global budget for health security issues. So that's the leadership and governance issue. The second thing to me is the will issue. So it's nice to hear you talk about One Health. So Dr. Lonnie King, who was most recently the dean of the College of Veterinary Medicine in Ohio, State, previously at Michigan State. Uh, I worked with him about 15 years ago to establish the first One Health Center at CDC, at that time called, affectionately called ZVED. Um, we were vowel challenged, obviously, but zoonotic, invective borne, and emerging diseases. So the One Health concept has been out there at least for the last two decades. Uh, we made a concerted effort at CDC to try to elevate that to a national center level, and con I think we need to continue to support that effort to have people understand what One Health means and make sure we're thinking collectively of One Health. You know, West Nile. I was having this conversation with you in 1999. We wouldn't be talking about Zika and Ebola. We would be talking about West Nile, and somebody would say, why did, why did we fail to put the birds falling out of the sky, connect that to people showing up uh, in, the, in the Bronx with uh, headaches and brain inflammation, right? Why did we not put those two pieces together? Uh, so we are, you know, we've made progress. Uh, we've made quite a lot of progress in, since 1999, uh, but we have a lot more to do, and that requires will. I've seen that will once before in the federal government around avian influenza, so this was a big issue. Uh, everybody was concerned about the bird flu coming from China, and there was a cross-government plan. People were working really well together. That prepared us for when H1N1 obviously showed up. So there are models for how we can make this work, but we need the will. And then the third one is obviously resources. Uh, I have seen the consequence of cutting budgets for state and local preparedness, which is where my heart will always be. Uh, public health, when I, when I was at CDC, I told people public health doesn't happen in, in Atlanta. Trust me, public health doesn't happen in Washington. Public health happens in your local communities. And how are we supporting that initial detection and response in your local communities? And how do we make sure we have the necessary surveillance tools, laboratory tools, to make sure that we can mitigate any impact of these diseases in our community? Thank you, sir. Well, Dr. Khan, thank you for your eloquent and passionate statement and your good advice. I like the leadership, will, and resources. Uh, I want to come back to that in questions, but uh, we also thank you for your public service. Uh, Dr. Lechtenberg. Good. Thank you. <clears throat> I'd like to express uh, thanks to Senator Daschle, Mr. Weinstein, and the rest of the engagement team from the Blue Ribbon Panel for coming to Kansas State and to Manhattan and to the heart of cattle country. Um, I'd like to also thank President Myers and the K-State team for inviting me to participate in this meeting. Um, further to commend the work on the Blue Ribbon Panel um, on your national blueprint issued in 2015. Um, most of us um, engage the federal government once a year on April 15th, periodically at, at election time and in the time of national crisis. We enjoy the luxury of assuming that someone's watching out for us and someone's taking care of us allows us to focus on our, our efforts on our families, building our businesses, creating jobs, 
and doing the things our economy is based on. And so we thank you for that, for this effort really helps protect uh, that luxury. Um, it, but it's further recognition that there's much to do and, and uh, many opportunities yet to address. Um, it's my hope that the communications and the relationships that develop during your trip to Manhattan um, can help link the silos that still exist in government, academia, and the food industry. Um, the role of agriculture and national biodefense cannot be emphasized enough. Ag has long been one of the most important components of our national security. We have the natural resources and infrastructure to be the most efficient nation on earth. It's helped us drive our efficiency, but has been pointed out the same attributes of our production system in ZAG that drive our efficiency also make us extremely vulnerable to accidental or purposeful attack. And so that is the, much of the basis of what uh, the, the panel's here today to discuss. Um, the scope of the endeavor is really broad and pertains to much more than just production ag. Um, but I would applaud your first effort uh, that you recognized in recommendation, and that is to centralize the point of authority for national biodefense. Um, Dr. As was pointed out after Dr. Marsh's presentation, the state of Indiana apparently did that very well and can serve as a model for many of the activities that we have as challenges for uh, ag biodefense. Um, one of the statements that, that I use in our staff meetings when we start on projects and when we end on projects is a, is a flippant little great plan, what could possibly go wrong? And the reality of it is many, many things can go wrong. Almost everything has to go perfect, but much can go wrong on any given plan. And with respect to biosecurity, it's oftentimes the weakest link. It's the haphazard event. It's, it's someone being above policy or taking shortcuts that, uh, that oftentimes cause the shortcomings of some of our systems. In addition to having a contract research organization business where we help uh, vaccine and pharmaceutical manufacturers approve uh, products for veterinary use and for biomedical use, um, I'm also a cattle feeder and we have a, koi, a, a corn and soybean production system uh, in Nebraska. Uh, I can tell you that as a producer, we generally consider our risk to be supply demand related. Um, and we try to manage those supply demand risks of our business through conventional um, plays on efficiency. We try to do uh, the most efficient production systems that we can. It's no surprise to anyone in this room that the implication of ag biodefense dwarfs any of other our risk concerns. Um, the sorts of things we're talking about today uh, simply take um, complete businesses out of the picture for the for the rest of time if, if it's not handled uh, correctly. Um, with respect to surveillance and detections of disease within the food system, I'd offer the following points for consideration. Uh, the list includes many things that have been talked about today, um, many systems that are, are already in place. Some have been successfully implemented. Um, others have been need to expand scope to train individuals to apply for good systems in, in other states as a, with Indiana as the example, systems that work well. We need to enhance and broaden the scope of those, uh, learn from those positive examples as well as failures that, uh, that have been encountered along the way in other systems. Um, a few talking points from the perspective of a food animal producer um, and a food animal practitioner. Um, again, Dr. Marsh touched on this, Dr. Beckham touched on this, but my first recommendation would be that 
Um, we further implement and enforce a national um, premise ID and traceability identification program for food producing livestock. Um, we can accomplish this and we should. Um, it's one of the first questions that containment officials will ask when a, when a population, when a disease breaks within a population, is where are the animals, where are they physically located, and how many are there, and, and what's the current status. With application of the technology that we have available within our systems today within REACH, uh, this, is a, this is not an unsurmountable task and certainly can be implemented at the state level and coordinated nationally. I think we need to review the policy of livestock indemnification to help mitigate the risk of financial devastation for producers that, part, that are at risk of, of uh, failure to participate, at risk of not doing the right thing. Um, Dr. Marsh's comments on the state of Indiana and how well they handled that um, I think is admirable. It's, it may not be um, intuitive to assume that all producers will always do the right thing for the nation's best interest at the right time. A properly reviewed indemnification program can help assure that that happens. Um, we're talking about the difference between um, bioterrorism and rapid detection so that we have producers that everyone is fully engaged and fully ready to um, call the ADR as soon as they can possibly see it. Um, I think we need to explore the implementation and deployment of rapid identification systems for pathogen detection. Um, Double-edged sword, we have technology that allows diagnostics to happen at veterinary clinic levels, even at farm levels, that are not the same thing as we're doing in our federal labs. Of course, the, the trade-off is we need to make sure that those are appropriately sensitive and specific. Um, so we trade off rapidity or you run the risk of trading off speed with accuracy. Um, but I think we should further explore the question, are we doing everything we can to get early diagnosis and detection and how do we control that information? We're doing some work with, a, with companies that are utilizing cloud-based systems for business management. The one we're working with it happens to be looking at cropping systems where you have um, almost continuous connectivity with equipment manufacturers, with seed companies, with fertilizer companies. When you take that same type of platform and apply it to veterinary medicine, it's conceivable that you could be getting real-time data back from many of these farms that have diagnostic implications um, in, a, in a continuous fashion. And the risk, of course, in terms of cybersecurity is how do we manage that data? How do we keep um, faulty data from becoming too widely dispersed until action can be made. But my suggestion would be there, there, there's opportunities for applying the existing technologies and fully implementing that um, that will require, uh, require some effort. Um, a surveillance program can be part of that, but the detection of foreign animal diseases and foreign crop diseases as well as zoonotic diseases uh, with a more robust surveillance program it will take some, some questions, you know, which ag products should be tested for surveillance, for which pathogens should we test them, how often, what type, where, um, and then how do we summarize that data into something meaningful. Um, but the creation of data, data on surveillance pathogens of interest um, is certainly critical, and we have the capacity to do better than we're currently doing, I believe. 
I think we need to increase the hands-on training for food animal veterinarians uh, that are in the field in the swine, poultry, and beef cattle and dairy operations to help assure that the, uh, the likelihood that we'll get rapid early detection um, is, is the very best that we can do. Um, domestic diseases have an explosive potential to affect our su food supply as well as mimic transboundary diseases. Um, the transboundary diseases are our ability to recognize those early and, and uh, transmit that data to regulatory officials is paramount. Um, recognize diseases with zoonotic potential. Um, anthrax and influenza were both brought up as examples of, that, of those opportunities today. Uh, we mustn't forget toxins and disease risks that can cause lack of uh, security in our food supply that may not be infectious in nature. There is a case uh, in the Midwest here just in the last year where a car battery for nefarious reasons was lobbed into a, a feed mixer and killed a large group of cattle. Um, so a, a purposeful event, um, while that wasn't a national scene type event, there are risks and opportunities for uh, transmission of that information that we could uh, disseminate and we need to think about point source toxin uh, 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 contaminations in our systems as well. Uh, I'd like to suggest that more specific training for food animal veterinarians uh, being exposed to purposeful and hands-on training for infectious diseases of domestic origin that would mimic foreign animal diseases is an opportunity to help increase the likelihood that we'll pick up on early detection. Uh, Dr. Higgs mentioned this morning the veterinarian that recognized early that West Nile virus didn't look quite like the St. Louis virus um, is, is big print. Um, when we have purposeful induction of food animal diseases uh, like foot and mouth disease, malignant catarrhal fever, for instance, the ability to recognize those um, in their pure unadulterated state from uh, IBR, from um, BVD virus, uh, the, the ability to differentiate tuberculosis from mycoplasma bovis infections in cattle. There are, there are currently biosafety level two challenge opportunities that we could use for training in fairly low uh, low expense environments would really enhance the likelihood that our practitioners in the field would go out and recognize differences when they see them. I'd like to incorporate public health official training um, as part of that process and engage uh, public health uh, prof professionals from the human medical side more into food animal production so that they can understand our food production systems better. And as we develop a select group of professionals that, that understand the nuances of production, I think it will serve our nation well. Uh, a note that I made during the proceedings today, it occurred to me when we talk about uh, food, um, something that escaped our discussion so far as uh, must, uh, lest we not forget water. Um, the most important nutrient of people and livestock um, has great opportunity as a surveillance tool. It has great, great risk as a tool for purposeful um, contamination of our food supply. Um, 
from a surveillance perspective, there may be selected areas that we could uh, test affluent runoff from ag operations and create a database that don't involve thousands and thousands of tests every year, but would involve selected points um, of, of interest for us. Um, while there's an overreaching policy for on agro dispense will require hundreds of very specific procedures and cross-checks, the list will continually be based upon <clears throat> and will continue need to be amended based on our production systems, the advancement and development of new technology, the application of that technology, and our awareness of producers and consumers um, that to remember that the stakes are very high. Um, fewer emissions are nobler than our need to ensure a wholesome, face, uh, safe food supply for our citizens. I'd like to thank again the panel for your commitment and for your trip to Kansas. Well, Dr. Lechtenberg, thank you for your comments and your wisdom and the, uh, the very thoughtful advice you've shared with us. I especially appreciated the fact that you emphasized water. You're right. We haven't spent the time, we could spend the day talking about water, and, uh, and I appreciate your emphasizing its importance. All three of you have talked about the importance of the implementation of these uh, of these policies. And uh, as we consider the national strategy for biosurveillance, I especially appreciated Dr. Beckham's emphasis on how critical it is that we implement. And we've been talking all day of the need to turn words to action. And I, I guess I want to come back to that for a moment. I really liked uh, Dr. Khan's very succinct summary of what I think implementation entails, leadership, will, and resources. But I, if we could, I'd like to take just a couple of minutes to drill down on what do we mean by implementation? Can we elaborate a little bit more and, and, and be as, as, as concrete as possible in talking about a time frame and talking about what implementation means in your mind? Dr. Beckham, let's start with you. So we have the technologies today to implement a really robust biosurveillance system where we can get ahead of the game and, as we talked about a little bit yesterday, get left of boom. Um, some of that work has been done in the livestock sector, uh, in one of the centers of excellence, actually, at Texas A&M when I was there. It was a tremendous effort uh, called Enhanced Passive Surveillance. So we began to develop um, real-time applications for working with our veterinarians and our producers uh, to collect information in the field. So what does it mean to implement something like that? I mean, I think you have to clearly work with the, the producers and the veterinarians. You have to be communicating with them on how that data is going to be used, what type of data you need, who's going to own that data, what decisions are going to be made off of that data, how's that data going to be linked to other, who's going to have access to that data. Um, and then mostly and foremost, you have to work with them to provide them incentives to use it. So for the production systems example, how can we collect information that we can also provide back to you that will enhance your production? So how can we give you a competitive edge? So whether it's in the poultry industry or whether it's in the swine industry. And then how do you link that with what's going on in the secure food supply plan? So how do you capture the movements that you're going to need to be able to do the permits that Dr. Marsh talked about earlier? So how can you give these guys a one stop shop to put their data there but to be assured that it's going to be safe held confidential have held confidentiality have the confidentiality around it and also be able to effectively use it and tell them how and when you're going to use that data 
Um, I think, too, in the federal government, we tend to, uh, the systems overlap. You know, I've heard a lot lately about antimicrobial resistance surveillance system. Why on earth are we not looking to collect all of this data together at the same time, uh, using the same systems that can actually communicate with one another, right? Um, data standards, hugely important. Uh, capturing data from the D labs and the human labs and being able to marry that. So on the other end of that, some of the vision for NBAF, I think, too, is having a more robust epidemiology capability, being able to work with our state vets, being able to provide that feedback back to them so that they, too, can use that data to go out into their states and work with their producers and the production systems and get uh, get an edge on that. So what does that look like for implementation? Obviously, you've got to have the governance, and you've got to have some central authority that's going to hold people accountable for developing a system and putting it out there and working with the producers. Um, those things take time, building that trust with the producers and building that trust with veterinarians and across the aisle, I guess, on the medical side, too. It's going to take a lot of time and a lot of relationship building and a lot of trust that has to go into it. So, you know, you're not talking about something that's going to happen in a year. The technology's there today. But building those relationships, communicating, being transparent about how that data is going to be used, the governance has to be central. It has to be oversight. You have to bring in all these different components. FDA can't be thinking about capturing information on antimicrobial resistance in USDA2 and not communicating um, with the other databases that are being developed. And so I think that's critical. Got to have the money to sustain and support something like that. So what do the production systems get out of it? I mean, initially when we started our program, we were paying uh, for their service on the applications to get them incentivized to use it. But ultimately, the goal was to move that out to them and give them some useful data so that we wouldn't have to do that, but it was self-sustaining. So how do you sustain that? What's the monetary um, figure that goes along with that? What, what, what happens when you get an alert off of the system and you have to send that sample to the diagnostic lab? Who pays for that? So all of those types of policies and procedures have to be worked out as well. And again, that's going to require some thought centrally and, and communication with the producers and the veterinarians and then on the medical side as well. So there's all of that. So governance, policies and procedures, and funding. How do you sustain something like that long term? Um, and hopefully it becomes somewhat self-sustainable in the, in, in the effect that um, you're incentivizing people to report into that system and they're getting something out of it. But at the same time, somebody's got to pay for the diagnostics and the follow-ups and the alerts that happen off of that. And then somebody's got to be there to work with the state vets and the producers and the veterinarians to give them that data back. And then you've got the whole crosstalk with the human side, making sure those systems can communicate and talk to each other. And for me, that's, that's a multi-year implementation. But again, central governance, central oversight, and accountability so that people aren't creating multiple systems that don't communicate. I mean, why would we do that? Somehow I have the impression you've given this a lot of thought. <laughs> <laughs> I did that for a few years, and so it, I was very passionate about it because these guys want to work with you, and they want to give their data to you. They want to make sure it's used well. They want to make sure they get something back out of it. Um, and it's a tremendous opportunity. I mean, and again, you know, when I read that they're developing systems for antimicrobial surveillance, why are we not using these technologies and doing the same thing? I mean, realizing you collect different data for different things, but you shouldn't create duplication. Dr. Kahn, I especially appreciated your comment about the need for leadership basically through what you described as a special advisor in the West Wing. We have, as you know, in the Blue Ribbon Panel, have talked about uh, delegating that responsibility to the vice president. But could you elaborate a little bit more, given your experience at CDC, why you think that's so important? Why having somebody in charge 
close to the president uh, makes a difference? I think what we just heard about data <laughs> and surveillance systems is that example. There are too many systems that are siloed and people don't talk and work well together. And I think having that central leadership could really assure that necessary coordination. Um, and you know, we started to talk about data, so I, let me stay in that realm, why leadership would really matter in this space. And I think about things like veracity and timeliness of data. We have too many data systems. We have lots of sources, which is a good thing, but we have too many data systems that don't talk uh, to each other with different types of ownership of that uh, of that data, and it's made it diff difficult. We've attempted this previously. There's something called the National Bios NBIS, National Biosurveillance NBIC in Intelligence Center. Right. We've, we've attempted this, and it would have been successful with better leadership, to be very honest. I believe it would have been successful with better uh, with better uh, leadership. But, you know, all these data systems don't make sense, at least from the human health side, when we know most of this is already captured when somebody walks into a hospital, walks into a clinic. That, that electronic record is created instantaneously. Why do we need to have multiple intermediaries? Why do we not have systems set up that capture this immediately when somebody walks in the door, the moment the lab test turns? positive. Uh, I think we need to be thinking of surveillance and detection very differently than we ever have previously from a human health standpoint. And that would take care of veracity issues. That would take care of timely issues. And then we have the tools. We just need the will for the data fusion part. How do you put together who went where to what they, to what they ate to where they traveled? That data already exists. And we see interesting uses of that data. For example, during foodborne outbreaks, you can, you can look at the cards people swipe at grocery stores to figure out what grocery store they went to and what they bought. And that can help you lead you towards a potential source. So this is data is just one example, but I can, that's the same thing's true in medical countermeasures. It's the main things, same thing's true in response, that having that leadership would really help us nationally be better prepared than we currently are. Thank you. Dr. Leckenberg. Yes. Any further comments on implementation? Well, from the, from the surveillance perspective and the, the access to the testing equipment that's out there, I think part of the implementation associated with that that we're lacking is identifying the bottlenecks, where we go to find common, um, common reproducible point sources that we can sample and get build, build a database. Um, the one thing that's different in veterinary medicine from a diagnostic laboratory submission perspective um, with, the, with the case of infectious disease, just diagnosis is, is pretty similar to, to human medicine, I suspect. But we tend to do sampling on dead animals and not very much on, not, not quite so much on uh, living animals. Um, so discrepancies in database, it's important to remember what your base population is. Um, with, re with respect to antimicrobial resistance, pretty important difference with respect to some of the infectious diseases we've talked about today, um, less so. Um, but, but I would agree with Dr. Kahn that the, the data to do uh, more pr productive work with already exists. It's a matter of getting that data coordinated, getting folks to allow it to be shared, and then creating systems that make that um, a combination of data um, and interpretation of that data possible is probably one of our largest low-hanging fruit opportunities. Very helpful. Thank you. Dr. Khan? If I may, Senator Dash, I'll add to that uh, leadership issue. So I think nationally we've already admitted we need an advisor because during the Ebola outbreak, some will remember that 
even though it was ridiculed, we did have a, we created an Ebola czar. Uh, so the reason for the Ebola czar was because Department of State was sort of doing what they were doing, Department of Homeland Security was doing what they were doing, Department of Defense, you know, you all, you all read it as well as I did. And that was the reason an Ebola czar was created. And all you have to do is strip the <coughs> Ebola piece off of that and strip the czar piece <laughs> off of that. And you sort of get that sense of you need somebody to coordinate. These are very complex responses that require coordination across the federal government. And to try to do it as we have, in the previous, as we have done previously doesn't work as well as it can. The, and the same thing's true at the international level. So Dr. Navarro was brought in once again at the UN level, not at and not at WHO, but at the UN level to sort of serve that role. Because what you need is you need that discussion with the chief executive of a country, not just to the minister of health of the country. When you think about what the implications of these diseases are, and so WHO's interaction is with the minister of health, which is excellent and needs to happen. But when you have something like a global pandemic, what you need is you need the UN secretary talking to the president or the prime minister. That's a different level of interaction. Thank you. Ken? Thank you. Um, Dr. Khan, I'm going to start with you. Um, you had a historical illusion in your remarks, and I think one of the best panels we had last year was um, involved a discussion of some of the use of uh, chemical and biological weapons in the past. And you referenced in passing the use of glanders in World War One, and I just it piqued my curiosity at teaser, and I had to ask about it. Uh, German agents against Russian mules and horses. So mules and horses were really big in World War One. Also big, I think, into almost World War Two. But by World War II, it wasn't as big of an issue. But World War I, this is how you move troops and this is how you moved goods. And uh, it's the uh, same thing as what today would be an EMP pulse against cars. You know, you just can't move stuff anymore if your horses don't work. And glanders? Oh, I'm sorry, glanders. I'm, I, you, the, the glanders part, it's... <laughs> Still got glanders on my brain. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a bacterial disease of animals. Oh, I see. Okay. So, gland, I'm sorry, glanders okay. is a... Potentially use of it. Uh, mellii. Pseudomellii or mellii? Melii. It's, it is melii. So it's Burkardelia melii. It's a bacterial infection of the animal that makes the animal sick and or die. I see. And so if you kill the animal, you, they can't pull that card anymore. I see. Okay. And then you also mentioned the National Health Security Index. You said that we're at 6.7 out of 10. Do you have any sort of uh, – can you give us any deeper understanding of that? how that index is calculated, what goes into it? So it's a composite index that was established three years ago to specifically answer the question, how prepared are we? Because often there's a significant federal investment, I can tell you, at CDC for the uh, healthcare preparedness program. It's almost it used to be $1.5, $1.7 billion. Now it's closer to a billion dollars. But, you know, you make that sort of investment and people want to know what are you buying with those dollars. And we would always list a list of programs that were being bought, but really couldn't say how prepared the nation was. And so that was the impetus three years ago to establish this National Health Security Preparedness Index. We were caref very careful that it's not it's not a CDC index. It's actually supported by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, currently out of the University of Kentucky. Uh, so it's independent of the federal government. It's a composite. So you look at various measures in those domains I gave you previously around surveillance and response and detection and information systems and countermeasures. And so there's various metrics in those. And there's a system to put those together and give you this composite score of 6.7. The score itself, to be very honest with you, is meaningless because it just depends on how you do the math to get your number, 
right? What's most meaning, what's more meaningful is what happens, once you've decided what your number is, what happens to that number over year, over years, and I can tell you it's not budging over year. And the other thing that's meaningful is how close is that number to what you think perfect looks like, right? So if we've established based on these metrics that 10, you know, you, you have a, a plan for moving stockpile. If you have to move doxycycline or ciprofloxacin in a community, you've got a plan, you can make that happen. We're going to give you a 10 on that. So how close are you to the 10 and how do you do over time? And so that's how I would evaluate the 6.7. We're not close to the 10 and we're not getting better. Okay. Great. Thank you very much. Welcome. Could I just follow up on that, Dr. Khan? I, I, I guess I'm curious. We had... I don't know if I would say ample information, but we had quite a bit of information on Zika and Ebola uh, prior to the outbreak. And it, it, I didn't see much evidence that we used that information in advance uh, to prepare adequately. And, and so I, in some ways, I think the 6.7, at least in that context, is generous. Uh, but, <laughs> um, but, but, I mean, could you elaborate a little bit more? Why, why given the information we had, were we not more prepared? Even though I have to say, given the ability now to look back, uh, we can be thankful that we were able to contain it and we dealt as effectively after the fact as we did, and great credit goes to, to everyone involved. But I, I'm just curious as to the lack of advanced preparation given the information we had and what lessons can be learned from those experiences as we look forward. Uh, thank you for that question, Senator. So they've actually now been published in a number of very good papers and studies on the lessons to be learned from the Ebola outbreak, both at the global level and at the national level, to not really appreciate what the, how this disease was so different in West Africa compared to what we were used to seeing in East Africa. Ebola occur, outbreaks occur in East Africa all the time. Nobody bothers to call a response because the communities know how to take care of it. And the expectation was the same thing would happen in West Africa, not recognizing the um, what had happened with the civil wars there and the fact that they had never seen it previously. And that's why the disease got to spread the response. The response was extremely slow. Um, and didn't use data to understand what was going on in the communities. In the United States, we failed to make sure that health, the health care system was ready for these cases. You can't build a wall around the U.S. for infectious diseases. People will walk in, seem absolutely fine, and then because they move faster than the incubation period, which is the time it takes to get infected, to get sick, so you walk in the door, you're absolutely fine, and then four days later you have Ebola, and you show up at your local emergency room. There's no way to prepare for that. So we need to, no way to prevent that by sort of border screening. So what we need to do is make sure that the hospitals were ready, and that didn't happen. The response in Texas was not robust enough from our public health officials based on published reports uh, and papers, and that's unfortunate because we should have expected we were going to get cases, and we should have expected that if a hospital didn't appropriately manage the patient, they wouldn't do well. The Zika response, I think, is is even more telling. So I, I talk about infectious diseases as predictable surprises, which to me is a tragedy because, you know, they keep happening and go, surprise. Like, no, it's not a surprise anymore. <laughs> they keep happening. And so, you know, we knew about Zika for over a decade as it moved out of Africa, across Southeast Asia, and into Oceania. And the moment it hit Yap Island, you know, it moved across the Pacific, it moved into Brazil, and then we saw what was going on in Brazil, and we knew what 
was going to happen. We knew it because we knew what happens with dengue. We know what happens with chikungunya virus. We know what happens with yellow fever. So you knew that this virus was going to explode. And it exploded. We knew it was going to come to the United States without a doubt. Uh, and despite that, uh, people in this room are more aware than I probably am of all the details around failing to fund the public health response until after we had already started to see cases occurring in Florida. Now, I want to be very honest with you because it's my responsibility as a public health official. I'm not sure we would have prevented those handful of cases in Florida. I don't think we would have, to be very honest with you, the handful of cases in Texas. Uh, but, you know, we could have been much better prepared to detect them faster, to make sure we had diagnostics up and running uh, and have all our guidances up and running. There's a lot of stuff that could have been done with these with additional dollars, including uh, the work not, you know, obviously I often talk about the public health CDC side, but, you know, at the NIH side, vaccine development, th diagnostics development, et cetera, there's all sorts of other work that could have been done. And we didn't have to wait for this to already show up on our shores before we decide, you know what, it's really a good idea to prevent pregnant women from Zika. Thank you very much for that good answer. Let me ask uh, Eleanor Usher if you have any questions. Ella? I do. I have a question for Dr. Khan. Um, you hit on something that we hit on in our report, which is the lack of a nationally notifiable disease list for animals. Um, there is certainly one in development, and we have encouraged through our reports the, the finalization of this process, which we understand will go through rulemaking. Um, can you tell us why the CDC having a notifiable disease list is so important to tracking infectious diseases nationally and how that paradigm could be successfully applied in the animal world? So the surveillance systems permit us not just to collect data, but they permit us to act on data. And that's why we have detection systems, so we can understand what's going on and then put together the public health response. Without having any data on what's going on within our communities, there's no way for us to respond. And so that's why the notifiable list of diseases has come together. Uh, they're heavily uh, biased towards diseases that are communicable in nature, so something that you could transmit to somebody else, like measles, for example, better be there. You know, so it's heavily biased towards communicable diseases. It also includes all the bioterrorism agents and other diseases where we can actually take some action. So, for example, the foodborne diseases are on this list because it could represent an outbreak due to cantaloupe or due to soft cheese or something like that, and you want to pull that off the market. So, uh, the similarly, um, the lessons to be learned from that is the advantages from the animal side of the house, that if you know about these diseases and you get that information timely, move it faster, you can then have, you can make a difference in your decision making about the animal or the farm or the community. Does that, does that get to what you're trying to get it, at, Ellen? It does. And, and from a policy level, I'm, I'm trying to understand you know, the CDC list, from my understanding, is a voluntary notification, correct, on, on the part of states to the federal government. But they, they do it a lot, right? I mean, despite the fact that it's voluntary. So it's a, it's a successful and useful tool. Uh, so this is where money works. Uh, so CDC funds many of these surveillance systems within the health departments to collect the data, and you're correct. So its its health issues are relegated back to the state. So the states then in their statute then just pick up that notifiable list, and then they repeat that notifiable list in all of their states. So every state of the union has a notifiable list which very closely matches that CDC list and occasionally has some extra additional diseases that are of concern to that specific 
to that specific state. But uh, at, the, at the individual state level, they understand the value also. So if somebody has, a, in my state, if there's somebody in Lincoln that has measles, the state wants to know very quickly because measles may not decide to stay in Lincoln. It may decide to move to other parts of the state, which we know it would. So that's why it's important for the state to very quickly understand what's going on so they can come in and vaccinate people, isolate people, whatever needs to be done. Thank you. Asha, any questions? Um, yes, just just quickly. Um, Ali, uh, we're, we're certainly aware of the uh, University of Nebraska's uh, Ebola um, Center uh, and uh, utility for training and, and so forth in the United States. One of our recommendations uh, has to do with um, creating a stratified hospital system in the United States. Um, and we recognize that we need to, we're not going to fund that with um, uh, the limited funds available in the hospital preparedness program, uh, nor should anybody, you know, think that. That's, that wasn't its intention. Uh, so could you talk a little bit about uh, just, you know, your, your opinion on that? Uh, you know, obviously Nebraska uh, and other places in the United States, there are a few, uh, we, we called them receiving hospitals that were developed enough capability to be able to treat um, uh, patients when they came in, but A, that's disease specific. Uh, we need to do something beyond that. We certainly can't have a bazillion, um, you know, Correct. levels going on for every single, for every uh, single disease. disease. Right. Um, and, you know, again, that's on the human side. One would imagine, one would hope that we would do something on the animal side as, uh, as well. Um, now, you've worked kind of on, you know, both sides of the, uh, of the fence in terms of uh, addressing these diseases. Do you think uh, that the implementation of a system is uh, like that is possible. Um, I think yeah. I think from a sustainable standpoint, the only way it's possible is for limited conditions, probably for tier one hospitals, and we need to think more broadly than Ebola, but but generally around highly communicable diseases. So if a MERS patient, for example, showed up, we wouldn't like that to be transmitted within a hospital setting. And we know MERS is I'm sorry, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome virus, which is a cousin of SARS. It's a respiratory disease that's spread from person to person very efficiently in hospitals to amplify it. So we don't. We don't want one of them in our hospital either. We want them there to take care of them. We don't. We, obviously, we don't want them there to spreading spreading disease. But you know, whenever I have this conversation, I people I have people and ask them to step back to what's going on in the United States around hospital acquired infections. Right. So we are currently seeing hospital-acquired infections with significant public health impact and economic costs. And hospitals need to up their game, not for the Ebola patient. Yes, they need to up it for the Ebola patient, but they need to up their game so that they're taking care of the line infections that they're having. They're taking care of the C. difficile infections. They're taking care of all of the other infections that we're seeing in their hospitals going on right now. Right. And so that's and that's how to think, I believe, to think about these more exotic emerging infections is you need to be ready for these diseases because you're seeing them already and patients are dying because of your actions right now. Mm -hmm. Right. And that needs to be taken care of routinely. And I think if you take care of that routinely, you will be prepared for these exotic patients that come in. Does that make sense? Yes. So I don't, I, I don't think we should be thinking, I've never believed in the break the glass approach to bioterrorism. Mm -hmm. You know, I think this is something you bake into our existing systems. And we know hospitals have a problem with healthcare acquired infections. Make them fix that and you will do a lot better for these bioterrorism and emerging diseases. Okay. Thank you. Well, let me just reiterate our gratitude to each of you for your 
Excellent comments and uh, the, the advice and counsel you've shared with us. We will take this into account as we consider our next recommendations and appreciate very much your participation. We're going to take a short five-minute break, and we ask if I could to have the, the, the next panel come to the table in, in the next couple of minutes, and we will return in, in five minutes or less. Take it off? No, we're, we're, we're leaving. Oh, you are? Yeah, we have to leave. Thanks for doing this. I'm not sure if you're 
Like you want the ball. Yes, no, 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 that's okay. Thank you. 
Do you want me to shift yeah, over? I wait until Ellen. Until Ellen? Ellen's yeah. out. Oh, she's she gone. With, uh, oh, that's right. So it's just the two of you. Okay, great. Yeah, why don't you move over here? Perfect. So we're not squashed on the, on the other end. All right, we will resume the, the meeting with our, our final panel of the day. Uh, there are those who have planes to catch, and we've lost a, a couple of our of our head table here, but we uh, appreciate very much everyone uh, who can stay, and certainly we are especially grateful to our final panelists. Uh, Dr. Jackie McClaskey is the Secretary for the Kansas Department of Agriculture, and uh, Dr. Charles Hunt is the State Epidemiologist and Director of the Bureau of Epidemiology and Public Health Information of the Kansas Department of Health and the Environment, and Dr. Kurt Mann is the Chief Executive of the EMPRIS Group. Hope I pronounced that correctly, but I appreciate uh, each of you, uh, and uh, and uh, very grateful that you've uh, waited the entire day to make your presentations, and we're grateful, especially for that. So, uh, Dr. McClaskey, I think we'll start with you. Well, thank you, and I will join everyone else today in thanking you all for being here. And on behalf of the governor, we're very happy to have this panel here, and just one more sign of how. Um, dedicated we are as a state to biodefense and agricultural specifically. Um, you've heard reference today, agriculture is our state's largest industry, makes up 44% of our economy, um, about $64 billion um, that it adds an economic activity to our state, and that doesn't include food retail sales. Um, you get into adding food sales, and um, we're well over half of our economy is dependent upon agriculture and food. Our largest single sector within that is beef. And when you look at animal agriculture as a whole, it's about a $20 billion economic impact to our state. So when we think about the things we've been talking about today, um, we know and understand that they're important not only to the industry, but our entire state economy. From the Kansas Department of Agriculture perspective, um, we, are, we moved our agency the majority of our agency to Manhattan two and a half years ago. And one of the reasons we made that decision is because um, of the, the point, uh, the decision being made that NBAF was here. And I know that you saw our office yesterday. We are officed right next to NBAF, and we see that as a very important message of our state's dedication to this cause. Um, our state is the, does have the lead responsibility uh, for dealing with an agricultural emergency. Our agency does for our state. In addition, when you look at the statutory authority, when it comes to an agricultural emergency in the U.S., the primary authority lays with the states. Um, we have the, obviously we'll be in collaboration with our federal partners, but when it comes to the day-to-day -day decisions of how we respond, that lies within our state agency. And I'm lucky to work with an excellent team in that area. We have up in the corner our animal health commissioner, our deputy animal health commissioner, our deputy secretary, and our emergency management coordinator. And, and that team has, has worked to put together a very good plan. We take our goals and our authority very seriously, um, and we exercise them regularly. In the last seven years, we've held five um, full-fledged um, exercises. In the last four, we've held four multi-day exercises that include all levels of government, county, state, federal, agricultural organizations, and industry. Um, primarily focused, we tend to focus on FMD, um, assuming that if we can find a way to respond to FMD, we can apply those lessons to just, just about anything else that we might encounter, including the AI cases we had in our state. Date, um, in 2015. When we think about our roles and the things that we, we do, we also understand the important role we have in helping the locals, which is why our emergency management team has held over 20 um, small tabletop exercises at the local level in that same four-year period. 
During these exercises, there are three major lessons that we have learned, and that's where my focus will be today. The first is that there is a significant human resource shortage when dealing with any type of agricultural emergency. Um, we First things that we have done to address that is we have made agriculture or emergency response an agency-wide responsibility. It does not matter what program you're in, what division you work in. You might be in water, you might be in IT, you might be in communications, but in the case of an agricultural emergency, our entire agency refocuses on that, and that um, is the first step in expanding our team. The second piece is we are um, have understood that there is no amount of government employees that are going to be able to serve all of the, the roles necessary in dealing with an agricultural emergency. So we have established, and we'll be kicking off this spring, the Kansas Agricultural Emergency Response Corps that will be made up of volunteers of anything from veterinarians to appraisers to culling specialists. Um, if you can think about something that would be done in an agricultural emergency, I believe we have over 20 different job descriptions that will be included in that volunteer role, and we think that's very critical to being prepared to respond. We know and we expect to collaborate and partner with the USDA. However, in the case of an FMD outbreak, if we are not the first state, we do not expect that we will see a significant number of USDA personnel in the state. The reality is that um, we believe we're going to have to plan on the majority of this response, the majority of the manpower coming from within our state and not coming from elsewhere to provide assistance. So that's the approach that we have taken. One of the things specifically related to human resources that we have noted is that we need more FADs, uh, more folks that have gone through foreign animal disease diagnostician training, and that um, one of the challenges that we find that we think could be a simple solution to be on the list is that that training needs to be available more frequently. Um, for example, we hired a new vet in September, and they're still on a waiting list to get into that program. We do appreciate the um, moving that, that training to Ames, and we you know someday that that training will be in Manhattan. But the key to that is if our state for example, is willing to invest in training another 10 veterinarians, make that, make that resource available to us. Even if we're willing to write the check, let's give us the training opportunity to do that. And that, to me, seems like a simple solution, but is incredibly important, as we've heard about talking about disease surveillance and diagnos um, diagnosis earlier today. Second piece, second lesson learned that we've taken from our exercises is that the response plans need to be realistic. And when I say that, that seems simplistic, and I'll share with you some very simple examples, but as some of the frustrations we have had of listening to here's the plan and then asking the question and exercise, well, that's not going to work. Why is it still the plan? And how do we address those types of things? And that's actually led us in our own response plan for our state to move from a unified command with USDA to a coordinated command. Understanding the, the role of those decisions will lay with our animal health commissioner and our team as our policy team, um, and that we will coordinate with USDA, but we don't see that unified command at this point um, is the right, the right direction for us. Um, obviously, collaboration is key, but we just know that we need to move forward to make the decisions that are best for our state in dealing with an exercise. One example of that, where we're not all quite on the same page from state to state and at the federal level, is the stop movement order in the case of a foreign animal disease outbreak. In the case of FMD, um, the Kansas policy is, is if there is a presumptive positive case of FMD anywhere in North America, we are going to stop movement into our state and within our state. We'd give probably a 12 to 15 hour notice, kind of depending on the time of day. We've exercised that as well. And then we would stop all movement until we felt like there was um, some knowledge of how big the outbreak might be. That's very different than other states and certainly different than what you would see um, at this point recommended by USDA. Uh, the other piece, and the bigger piece, and the piece that I think that there are several folks in here that could talk about for hours, is the issue of culling and disposal versus vaccine. 
vaccination. Um, as we have moved an USDA policy from a culling and disposal plan to what is now moved from vaccinate um, to cull, to vaccinate to slaughter, to vaccinate to live policy, we have severe concerns that that is actually something that we can implement realistically in the time frame necessary to stop the spread of disease. And keep in mind that that is our first and foremost responsibility is to stop the spread of disease. And so when we start looking at um, those plans and thinking about um, what a vaccinate to live policy might be, have we really answered all the questions of everything from consumer acceptance for those animals to the animal welfare that animals might go through if they have to live through um, uh, live through the disease um, in the process in which we're no longer culling um, livestock. So that those are challenges that we have. And one of the pieces, and I know there are a lot of veterinarians in the room, and many of them are my friends, so I ask them not to take this comment personally. I feel like sometimes we have too many veterinarians talking about this, and we are really not creating this conversation amongst policymakers. As a Kansas Secretary of Agriculture, I've yet to be in a room in which um, I've seen other folks in my job get together and really talk about this issue and start thinking about the fact when a state decides to cull or a state decides to stop movement, all of our governors are going to care about that decision. And we tend to make this an animal health state veterinarian only discussion. And I have severe concern that, that as much as that team continues to work together and communicate across states, that we're not getting that discussion at all the levels it needs to be in order to make sure that we really can make um, the best policy decisions. When we look at specific um, vaccine availability, you've heard some of those numbers today. USDA estimates that we would be able to get 1 to 1.5 million doses delivered into the state in 7 to 10 days. In another 14 days, we could get another 1.5 million doses. Do the math, 3 million doses in 3 weeks. Three to four months later, um, we would expect continuous production of vaccine, providing again another 1 to 1.5 million doses per week. That assumes the master seed exists, otherwise that number becomes 18 months, right? Um, in our December exercise, we had one major feedlot and one dairy in western Kansas that were infected. In that case, based off the populations within that state, our request was 1.5 million doses to meet our needs. So that would be Kansas requesting the entire availability that was in 7 to 10 days. When told that we would get that vaccine in seven to 10 days, we felt like we had no other choice but to go ahead and cull, um, cull those animals and dispose of them. And that's what we exercise. So even though that the, the policy is to vaccinate, we felt like culling was, was the choice that we had to make. If we were to give you a number for the, um, so we have 8 million susceptible species to FMD in the state of Kansas. And the majority of those are concentrated in Southwest Kansas. If we were to give you an estimate of the number of vaccines we would request if Southwest Kansas became infected, we would request at minimum 6 million, probably somewhere in the 8 to 12 million doses, accounting for the fact that hogs obviously need two, um, two doses. So even the numbers we've heard recently from USDA of they need $130 million to have 25 million, or 25 million doses of each of the 10 um, serotypes, in that situation, Kansas would still request potentially near half. And we're not Iowa, where there are 22 million pigs, and they need two doses per head. So when you look at those numbers, from our perspective, we're highly concerned that they're really, the, the jumping to vaccine, and you heard this, this comment earlier today, is a silver bullet, is really a realistic policy approach. And that leaves us concerned with how we are going to get the support we need to respond in other ways, especially if culling is the necessary um, direction for us. So that leaves us in a challenging spot. Back to why I mentioned earlier, we felt like we needed to move to coordinated command versus unified. 
My third and last point is something you haven't heard a lot about today, and it, I feel like it could be a whole other day's discussion, so I'll just hit the highlight of what are we going to do to get our industry back up and running. We've heard the term earlier today about continuity of business. Business in the agricultural industry will stop in the case of an FMD. Um, to pretend that we are going to have full continuity of business, I, and as we talk to industry, we expect it to stop. We're going to stop movement. We know we're going to stop it. The key is how much, how do you stop the spread of disease fast enough to get business back in motion? And then what are you doing to help those producers, those farmers and ranchers that were impacted to meet their needs? You've heard about indemnity today. There are a lot of questions about understanding indemnity. I understand during the AI outbreak, there was a lot of discussion, a lot of frustration between USDA and OMB about how indemnity was um, defined. Looking at things like, are you going to pay the value of the animals the day before the outbreak or the day after? Are they going to pay 100% or are they going to pay 50? Is the state expected to come up with a portion of that? Um, what are we going to do to, for payments for other things related to response? Um, all of those pieces are going to be important. We haven't had a good conversation as an industry, as a state, as a country with our ag, ag finance industry. Ag finance needs to be included in thinking about how we're going to get our industry back up on board. And obviously the other piece then is regaining trade status. The U.S. is not necessarily known for following OIE guidelines, so I get a little skeptical when the OIE guidelines are given back to me of how quickly we're going to get trade status back under a vaccine-to-live policy. So I think it's important we really think through those implications. Um, the big question is our economy would be devastated in the case of an FMD outbreak. In Kansas, our entire state economy would be devastated in addition to the industry. So the more quickly we can move back, the quicker we can get our economy back where it needs to be. Um, as I close, just a couple of things I might highlight that I heard and I think are really important. You heard from the last panel the importance of traceability. Um, we have done a growth um, strategy over the last several months and worked with the agricultural industry and the entire livestock industry in our state is telling us we need a traceability system. So that's something that our state thinks is important as well. In closing, I just thank you for giving, you, giving me the opportunity to be here and happy to answer questions about any of these or any other um, topics you might have. So thank you very much. Well, Dr. McClaskey, thank you very much for a very powerful statement, and uh, you speak from a wealth of experience, and you certainly uh, have, have given us a, a, a far better understanding of the perspective of agriculture in Kansas and how to deal, especially with uh, the aftermath and uh, how we address uh, the, the, the many uh, challenges we face in the aftermath of an outbreak. Mr. Hunt. Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to to speak with you today, I'm going to be shifting gears a little bit. Uh, my responsibility as a state epidemiologist is primarily on human health, but I've been listening very intently to the discussion throughout the day today and, and also yesterday. And I think that the, the stage has really been set for uh, the information that I'm going to be uh, presenting to you. In particular, in the last session, Dr. Khan uh, talked about the importance of, of public health being uh, at the local level, and, and so some of my discussion today will, will echo that. Our ability to respond to any event uh, that crosses that, the agricultural food safety uh, 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 issues with human health is going to depend very strongly on uh, a strong public health system. And so I'm going to talk, talk a little bit about some scenarios over the last few years and then, and then talk about our, our public health infrastructure in the state. So first, I'm going to take you back a few years. Uh, it was uh, August 11th of 2009. That was not a Friday, by the way. It was, it was, <laughs> <laughs> it, it was, a, it was a Tuesday. But uh, we got a call, several patrons that were dining at a, at a local uh, Mexican restaurant in, in Johnson County, Kansas, became suddenly ill with sweating, nausea, 
vomiting and dizziness, dizziness right there at the restaurant. Uh, in fact, uh, they were so ill that emergency medical services had to be called to the scene. Uh, the local health department was notified uh, as along with their environmental department and then they in turn notified uh, us at the Kansas Department of Health and Environment as well as our colleagues at the Kansas Department of Agriculture, which is responsible for uh, food, food establishment regulation and, and inspection. And so they went and they, they did an inspection and based on the symptoms and the findings during that initial restaurant inspection, which included uh, refrigerators that were not working properly and some temperature uh, and time violations, uh, we suspected that we were dealing with some kind of a bacterial intoxication, which would explain the rapid onset of illness. And in total, there were 12 people who were reported to be, have become ill. Uh, the Department of Agriculture ordered that the restaurant be closed until the, the coolers could be fixed, and they, they essentially rectified the, the problem. The uh, food was, was, uh, was, was thrown out after we collected samples for laboratory testing, um, which takes some time. Uh, it took... Uh, about two and a half weeks before we got the results back. Uh, and the re results came in on Friday, uh, August, August 28th. Uh, but there was no pathogen or, or toxin identified. And so we were, we were left kind of scratching our heads. And so we were kind of thinking about this over the weekend. And then on Sunday, August 30th, we got another call. Uh, this, and once again, emergency medical services had been called to the same restaurant. Uh, this time there were more than 30 victims. Uh, with the same kinds of symptoms. So our, our level of concern uh, increased quite a bit. Uh, and so we began talking with, uh, with federal colleagues at that point. And after the second event, we began to, to be a little more concerned that maybe we were dealing with an intentional poisoning. And so we worked with the, the Federal Food and Drug Administration as well as local law enforcement um, and I'll, I'll kind of summarize uh, what happened in the ensuing weeks, but laboratory testing on additional food samples that were collected uh, did reveal that the restaurant patients had unknowingly ingested methamyl, which is a restricted-use, uh, highly toxic pesticide while, while eating salsa. As it turned out, this is one of the largest intentional chemical food poisoning events in the United States uh, that had occurred. And, and then uh, in 2011, two former employees at the restaurant were sentenced to seven and 10 years, respectively, in federal prison, and they were ordered to pay restitution. Um, and so that was a very different experience for us in, in dealing with an intentional, uh, intentional event. And we have to keep in mind uh, that this occurred in the midst of the 2009 uh, H1N1 pandemic. So we were busy responding to that. Um, you know, there was some discussion yesterday about, uh, you know, everything that goes on in, in public health and in healthcare settings has to go on even when we have a big event occurring. Um, so we were, we were busy responding to H1N1, and, and as we recovered from that, and, and we, were, we were going along, and, and then uh, there's been some discussion today about the, uh, what happened with Ebola. And of course, that was in, in 2014, uh, in March. Uh, the outbreaks in West Africa uh, began to become apparent, and uh, we, we saw that several countries in, uh, were, were becoming affected, including the United States. Um, the CDC obviously was very active in, in response to the international and domestic activities to stop the outbreak. And when the first case of Ebola virus disease was diagnosed in the United States on uh, September 29th, uh, state and local health departments throughout the U.S., along with hospitals and other healthcare entities, uh, really had to scramble to prepare for the potential of additional cases. Um, as uh, for those of you who were with us yesterday, uh, heard Dr. Norman talk about the response in Kansas. I think in general, because of the work that we've done in preparedness, I think we were probably a little bit better prepared to respond to that. 
We had our first comprehensive state plan for Ebola uh, ready to go, I think, the first or second week of August. And so I think that we were in, we were in pretty good shape. But nonetheless, there, there was a lot of additional uh, activity going on. And uh, in October of 2014, of course, the CDC implemented the, the post-arrival and screening uh, and monitoring of travels that were, uh, that were coming in from the impacted countries in West Africa. Again, that's imposed a substantial burden on many state and local health departments. Uh, there was funding uh, that came in, of course, with, with Ebola. Uh, it was, uh, but that funding didn't arrive until February 2015. And so, quite frankly, by February of 2015, we were already uh, very, very much in the response and 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 dealing with uh, dealing with the travelers that were coming in making recommendations to our healthcare uh, institutions in the state. And so a lot of that, a lot of the hard work had, had already been done by that point. Um, and we saw, we, 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 and quite frankly, we're still dealing with, uh, with, with the Ebola funding, uh, even though, uh, you know, the cases have, have stopped occurring a long time ago, we're, we're still dealing with uh, the, the programs and activities that are related to that. And of course, 2015, we've heard some discussion about the emergence of Zika virus. Um, of course, the, this was uh, uh, in 2015, the, the emergence of Zika virus in Brazil uh, in May, and then the recognition that Zika virus was, uh, was causing microcephaly, and the, this being the first virus in 50 years to be recognized as a cause of, of major birth defects. Um, in the subsequent months, Zika has emerged throughout the Americas, and the concern about pregnant women traveling to affected countries, as well as the risk of importation into the United States. Once again, we're seeing state and local health departments scrambling to, to respond. Um, as many of you are, are very well aware, CDC had made a request to Congress to, uh, to secure additional funding for preparedness and response activities. Um, while that was being debated, CDC had to make a very difficult decision to, uh, to pull nearly $50 million out of the, the, the base public health and emergency preparedness funds, the cooperative agreements that were coming to states. And so at the state level, the impact on us was was really uh, was twofold. First of all, we were seeing a decrease in our our basic preparedness funding, um, plus all the additional work that we had to do just to uh, to revise our budgets. Uh, there's a lot of administrative work that has to be done with that. Uh, once uh, once funding for Zika had been uh, had been allocated to states, uh, the, our preparedness funds were reinstated. But again, there's a lot of work that has to go into into that. And of course, that process took many months. And it, once again, by the time all this additional funding comes in, the states are already doing a lot of the work. And so um, I think it's important to, to understand the, that we have to operate on core public health support. And, and, I'll, and I'll talk about some of my recommendations here in just a little bit. Um, I, I think it's important to understand that the, that all this is occurring uh, in, a, in a public health in infrastructure that has some challenges. Um, in Kansas, we have 105 counties and, and 100 local health departments, and 75% of those local health departments serve populations of less than 25,000 people. 72% of our local health departments in Kansas have fewer than 10 employees, and uh, over a third have fewer than five employees. So. It's, it's very difficult. A lot of those staff don't have uh, uh, specialized training in public health, and so and with the breadth of responsibilities they have in running the health departments for their, for their communities, it's difficult for them to, to take on a lot of additional uh, responsibilities and respond to events as they occur. 
uh, on top of that, 24% of local health departments lost staff in, in either uh, fiscal 20, 000, uh, 2014 or in fiscal 2015 due to budget cuts. So at the state level, what that leaves us with is having to provide a lot of intensive technical assistance to local health departments, uh, particularly those outside of the major urban areas in, in Kansas. About 60, 50 to 60% of the population resides in the major population centers, and by and large, those health departments are well-staffed, um, and, and they can respond to these things. But, but once you get outside of the urban areas, it becomes a little bit more, more challenging. So in terms of, uh, of recommendations, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, reinforce some of the things that were talked about earlier today, and that is, uh, first of all, ensuring that our healthcare providers and our veterinarians receive training uh, and are aware of uh, the importance of, of public health. Um, it became really apparent during our, our Zika virus response in particular um, that it's hard for us to reach uh, outpatient uh, clinicians in particular. We have a health alert network system in the state called KS Han, um, but as the calls were coming in about, about Zika virus, it was clear that we were not reaching providers. Uh, they were not aware of the testing recommendations, for example, um, they weren't aware of a lot of the recommendations for prevention and control after people had come back from the affected, affected countries. I think it's also important to understand that, uh, that we have to stop thinking about global uh, health threats disease by disease. Uh, when we were responding to Ebola, one of the recommendations, of course, that we had in healthcare settings was uh, to screen patients coming in if they had been to one of the three affected West African countries. And so uh, that, that, that information was, uh, I think, was well uh, understood. And so many, many months even after uh, the recommendations were no longer to screen those patients, we were getting calls from providers asking us whether or not they needed to screen their patients if they had been to, to West Africa. By that time, of course, we were also dealing with, with chikungunya, as, as Dr. Higgs mentioned earlier. Um, and so what we decided to do was to try and reinforce the importance of thinking comprehensively about travel history. And so we put together some posters and a social media campaign, uh, hashtag think travel history. And, and the importance of healthcare providers when, they, when they're seeing their patients, particularly if they're exhibiting signs of an infectious disease, to, to, to ask them where they've been. Not if they've been to Sierra Leone or Liberia, but to ask them uh, more comprehensively about where they've been. And we have to ensure uh, that public health staff are trained. Um, Dr. Lechtenberg uh, mentioned the importance of, of training public health staff in agricultural production and distribution. And I think that I would like to reinforce that. It's, it's important for us to understand this, particularly when we're doing, uh, when we have a multi-state investigation where we, where we think a particular food uh, item is, has been implicated, to understand how food is produced, how it's distributed, I think would help us in our investigations. Uh, there was some earlier discussion today about ensuring that disease surveillance data is available in, re in real time. We've been uh, very successful in Kansas with implementing electronic laboratory reporting. Uh, more than 90% of all of our disease reports uh, that come in by laboratory right now are, are coming in via electronic laboratory reporting, so that's been a big uh, change for us because back in 2012 we didn't have any of, uh, we were at 0%. Um, and so that, that's been a big improvement for us. Um, the other thing that's going on is, of course, the emergence of electronic case reporting. Uh, this is similar to electronic laboratory reporting, but it's, but it's getting information directly from those, those health records, those electronic health records. And so the idea here is that when uh, certain triggers are, are encountered in the, in the, health, uh, in the electronic health record, 
that will initiate an electronic report uh, directed to the states. We uh, just submitted an application to the uh, Digital Bridge Project, which is an early implementation project to do just that uh, with, with five different health conditions. And so uh, we look forward to, uh, to, getting the, to, to seeing if we're one of the selected sites and we'll be able to implement this. All hazards response is really the basis of preparedness. And as I mentioned, we've got to stop funding uh, funding our response efforts one disease at a time. Uh, it's really difficult for us to spend money, uh, a lot of money all at once that's coming to us. Uh, quite frankly, we don't have uh, a legion of epidemiologists just waiting to be hired for us uh, to, you know, to deal with Zika or to deal with Ebola. We have to fund public health at a core level so that we can respond to anything that comes along. And as I mentioned, there, there are a lot of person hours that are spent on, on just the administrative burden of, of uh, responding to the, those, those funding uh, applications and so forth. And so that we, we, can, we can be fast and flexible. Um, I think that uh, of immediate concern, um, I, I, I do need to mention uh, the Prevention of Public Health Fund that's part of the Affordable Care Act. And again, setting aside the political issues around uh, the individual insurance mandate and, and so forth, um, the Prevention of Public Health Fund right now uh, comprises about 40 to 50 percent of our core infectious disease cooperative agreement. It's called the Epidemiology and Laboratory Capacity for Infectious Disease Cooperative Agreement. And uh, so those funds are at risk. If the, with the repeal of the Affordable Care Act, uh, there's concern that the Prevention of Public Health Fund, of course, would go with that. And to have nearly half of our core infectious disease uh, surveillance and epidemiology funding go with that is, is of real concern for us. So to give you an idea of what specific activities are funded through that, uh, for the current budget year, uh, all of our cross-cutting epidemiology activities, so you know, we have funding that's specific for foodborne disease and influenza surveillance and for arboviral disease and so forth, but for those, those events that occur that are not specifically in one of those categories, all of that, all of that funding comes from the Prevention of Public Health Fund. We've talked about data systems and health information systems for the current budget period. All of my health information systems funding is coming out of the Prevention Public Health Fund. And so there's a real, there's a real concern for that. And so we're, we're trying to, uh, uh, to educate uh, policymakers about the importance of, of that funding and, and making sure that, that CDC can continue to support that. So with that, I'll stop. And again, thank you very much for, for the opportunity to speak. Well, thank you, Mr. Hunt. And thanks for calling attention to the importance of the uh, Public Health Fund. It's uh, the Prevention of Public Health Fund. It's, uh, I think it's not gotten the attention it deserves, frankly. And I wish there was more of an appreciation of the magnitude of the contribution that uh, that, that uh, commitment has made. We are uh, really pleased. Uh, our final uh, speaker today who's been patient and uh, who's been with us both days, and uh, we are very grateful uh, to, uh, to Dr. Mann for, for coming and uh, for his patience, and uh, we look forward to your comments. Senator, Dr. George, thanks. Um, Senator, I thought you were going to say something about last but not least. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but I, okay. Certainly not least. <laughs> No, I'm glad to be here. And, and General Myers, thank you, and KSU staff and leadership, thanks for the invite back home. It's nice being here. Uh, I'm indeed honored to be invited back to the panel. And uh, as you may recall, I made remarks about two years ago, uh, almost exactly two years ago. And my message in that January was, do not forget about agriculture and food. 
So I'm really delighted that we're talking about defending the U.S. agriculture and food supply. The first, my first thing I'd like to say is uh, deja vu all over again. Famous baseballer, Yogi Berra. Uh, I sat and listened all day, and um, I could have been back in 2002 for a lot of things. But I also was refreshing to hear uh, Dr. Marsh talk about some successes, and I heard a few other successes too. So as someone who was involved in this from the very get-go, it was that, that's refreshing. It's like watching your children grow in some ways. <laughs> the second thing I'd like to say is omnia mutantur no set mutamra inilis. And there was a famous Roman, Ovidius, who said that. And that, thing, that means all things change, and we change with them. So I'm hopeful we can change. The notion of protecting American agriculture goes back to 1881 when the Civil Appropriation Act that year made provisions that were to control and monitor plural pneumonia in export cattle going to Europe, protecting an overseas market. And for the next 135 years, we have added laws, an act after an act, like adding bricks to a wall. The result, we have built our current agriculture safeguarding system and food safety approach. Then we turned the page into the 21st century, and, it's, and we had the events of 9-11 and then anthrax October. Um, we added the notion of defense then to this, our safeguarding food and ag, especially uh, defense from a thinking enemy. Unfortunately, those bricks in the wall sometimes do not work well together. And worse yet, at times, they do not work together at all. And this is not even talking about the differences between the human side of things and, the, and matters, agriculture, and animal. So there are several ways to approach today's topic, as I see it. One is, as we always have, to put more bricks in the wall or attempt to rearrange the bricks or make them work a little bit better. I suppose there's nothing wrong with that approach. However, I would like to come at the question a little bit differently. Um, not the brick wall point of view, but from a system as a whole. Much like an ecologist would look at an entire ecosystem and how it works, how it changes, and how it thrives. Maybe even like, General, someone fighting an insurgency. I would like to consider design, political design. Now let me start with a little bit of history and context, and you know, maybe everybody knows this, but it makes me <coughs> better to say it. It's, HSPD 9, number 9, Defense of U.S. Agriculture and Food, was completed, finished it in the summer of 2003, and then it was signed in January, the next January by President Bush in 2004. It is the only national policy document that attempts to encompass the whole of the U.S. government executive actions related to the protection of agriculture and food. The directive covers what has become the usual <coughs> homeland security topics, awareness and warning, vulnerability, mitigation, response and recovery. However, it also tried to institute some change, um, start something, something create a lasting mark, such as with outreach and professional development, coordination of budget in certain areas, and research and development with an eye to the future to learn and potentially develop the mission. This all happened, as you has been said earlier today, this all happened 14 years ago now. And <laughs> While I think it was a worthy effort at the time of policy, it was only a first step. And unfortunately, no other real presidential or administrative policy steps have occurred since with respect to the biodefense of agriculture, food, and water. I echo Dr. Lechtenberg. Water is important. Uh, 
The directive and the overarching policy has not matured. It has not changed, but the times have. It was never treated as a living document, even though we described it as such in our speeches at the time. I want to be fair, though. There have been several activities attempting to assess progress or shortcomings of the directive. GEO did some work in 2011. Uh, Lawrence Livermore through the, the BKC, the Biodefense Knowledge Center, did some work in 2014, but that was mostly a progress report in the form of a spreadsheet. This reality of little or no critical review and reinvigoration, not even an attempt to contemporize the document, has disappointed me. HSPD number nine was a document of ideas and goals to defend and protect our most basic of needs, actually to protect the most elemental level of our national security, that which gives us sustenance, agriculture, and the food we eat. It was meant to be a starting point, the beginning of a new coordination of partners, a call to planning and action. Prior to September 11, 2001, agriculture was barely talked about in the sense of national preparedness and federal response. Yes, there was some thought crowbarred underneath the Health and Medical Services Act, Annex of the then National Response Framework, uh, but this was hollow and it was under control and management of the wrong entities. Food did have its own annex, but it was primarily focused on delivering food in an emergency. The importance of the food supply beginning in its genesis, agriculture, was simply undervalued and overlooked. After September 11th, the perception of agriculture changed a bit, and, and from something that is abundantly available, the food changed, uh, changed from something that was abundantly available, just, be, just difficult to move and transport in an emergency situation, to something a little bit more complex and important. We made the agriculture base and the food supply stemming from it a national critical infrastructure. Agriculture and food was now recognized as a matter of importance and worthy of executive branch planning and deliberation. Then adding agriculture and food into the family of the Homeland Security presidential directives gave the matter a seat at the national security table with the advent of the then new notion of Homeland Security. Agriculture and a people's food supply does not lend itself well to fit into a national security way of thinking. It's unfortunate at least the national security thinking since 1947. National defense is indeed a fundamental necessity of a state, and it is for us written into our Constitution, and rightfully so, a matter of the federal order of things. Furthermore, the evolution of our military sciences, the development of professional armed forces as keepers and purveyors of both offensive and defensive disciplined violence is a responsibility and function of the federal, federal entity in our union. It is not a matter of the region or state or local, with the exception of state national guards, which have a unique and additional roles, but defense is and should be a federal matter. Hence, it is a centralized matter. Now, defense of and national security of our food supply and the agriculture fountain from which it flows is a more difficult matter. A complexity of thought and design emerges when we, when we attempt to consider agriculture defense, agro-defense, if you will. It does not, nor can it fit neatly into a federal mission by itself. While the agriculture and the food infrastructure belongs to the private enterprise out there, it is also the purview of the states, as you heard several times today. The states have, they're, they're right there on the, on the front line. And if you look at food, 
again, a, a private infrastructure, just the food end of the continuum. It is overseen by local government as well, as you just heard a story from our state, the state epidemiologist here. Agriculture and the food system is a decentralized matter. Simple as that. Let's quit fighting it. Over the last hundred years or so, especially in the 20th century, we have evolved into an administrative state in many regards, a type of meritocracy whereby public policies are essentially crafted by experts and elites, then administered by bureaucracies under the belief that that delivers the greatest good to the greatest number. So with the benefit of hindsight, I question if this is the right formula for agriculture defense, total administrative state design. I recognize one of your main themes in the panel's report thus far, your, your blueprint is centralized control. I respect that. And um, it take, you take great effort and you articulate it very well, the reasons for it. I do not quarrel with that at all. I too have spoken in, in years past when I saw our dysfunctionality within the White House uh, of the need for a White House level, certain White House level leadership sustained and focused in budget coordination uh, in order to make headway with this thing called Homeland Security. But back to agriculture. Agriculture, it's a noun. Um, it means the science, the art of a, an occupation concerning cultivation, cultivating land, raising crops, feeding, breeding, and raising livestock. While it is a decentralized matter, it is in need of centralized organization and coordination. Nevertheless, the reality is it is very much a local phenomenon, a person's connection to place and time. It is a culture. It's a way of life. The complexity here thickens. And what, what should we do with this complexity for the serve defense of agriculture? I believe the key words are adaptation, flexibility, redundancy, and communication. And that communication is new pathways and new styles of communi communicating between the private sector, state, local, and federal. And the goal, a pursuit of balance between the central and that which is decentralized. In the word style of diplomacy in the State Department, we should pursue a policy of balancing central coordination and empowering decentralized function. Allow me to tell you a story. I believe it's a really good story. I'm a product of it. Beginning in the 1850s, there was a movement for a practical education for the practical person in their place and time. That movement culminated in the Morrill Act of 1862, commonly known as the first Morrill Act, setting up the land-grant college system. This initiative marked the first time federal aid was given to higher education. Then five years later, this the system was further authorized and empowered by the Hatch Act in providing funds to establish agriculture experiment stations. And as written in 1887, to promote efficient production, marketing, distribution, utilization of products of the farm as essential to the health and welfare of the people and to promote a sound, prosperous agriculture and rural life. In 1880, the story goes on, 1890, the second Morrill Act was passed, providing appropriated funds to the now land-grant colleges that are out there and established the 1890s schools, now commonly known as our historical black colleges. In 1914, the Smith-Lever Act was passed, establishing cooperative extension service, and it read, in order to aid in diffusing among the people of the United States useful and practical information on subjects related to agriculture, home economics, and rural energy, and to encourage the application of the same. 
And 80 years later, in 1994, I was a Congressional Ag Committee staffer. We added the Indian and Hispanic colleges to the land-grant family. There were other acts and amendments to this land-grant story, but the point, the point here is that they, there exists a decentralized system already owned by the states connected to the federal, built to deliver service to the people. There is a need for a centralized function, I, I agree, but there is also a need for a decentralized function close to involving and owned by the people in agriculture, a system that respects the de decentralization and promotes it, also satisfies in part the need for redundancy. The law of redundancy is the law of survival in biological systems. So I have suggestions. I believe simply reviewing and reworking HSPD 9 like policy for agricultural defense is not enough. But please do not get me wrong, I do think number nine needs to be reviewed and reinvigorated for our current time. It needs to remain a central organizing doctrine, a living document that is periodically refreshed and always kept contemporary. What I am suggesting is to think broader, to consider the essential organic nature of the problem the internal and external defense of a domestic, market-driven, decentralized activity. Well, what, what, what might this look like? A next-generation HSPD-9, like policy, crafted to guide central coordination and strategies, but with the additional, uh, addition of decentralized, robust entrepreneurial networks that perform and support the central. Actually, this is a dream for a thriving, you heard it a lot today, partnership. A partnership in balance, though. Balance between a set of central coordinating functions able to deliver resources and a decentralized group of sensors, doers, and enterprises. A partnership between federal, state, and private enterprise. I do not mean to imply that the legacy mindset we've had to, of threat and encounter or detection and response is in any way in error. These remain paramount. But how might we go beyond that? Decentralizing ownership decentralize the ownership of certain matters, promote innovation, create incentives, networks of awareness, and education and learning that serves the mission. I think we need to thoughtfully consider the socio-political design with an eye to create outcomes in the form of adaptable entities that embody the long view and sustainably moves and changes with the time and events. With kind thoughts for all my prior government bosses, and with a you know, proud memory of my government service, we do not accomplish what I speak of only with the federal government being in charge and taking care of matters. No nanny state, no administrative state. We should strive for a true partnership, a balanced marriage. I submit we should think, uh, we should mature our mindset and focus on public-private partnership. You've heard it all day, I'm, I'm there, you got my vote. We should think government stability with marketplace creativity, flexibility, redundancy, and adaptability. So now I get to the part I like, and I, this is some ideas and my what ifs. What if Congress produced an act, and let's say it's called the Agriculture Defense Coordination Act, that was designed to establish entities to be more nimble and flexible than a federal bureaucracy? And that act built institutions potentially co-owned, or better yet, co-used by the states and the agriculture and food private enterprises. What if that act 
in part created a federally owned corporation uh, to deal with the need, a user-friendly public-private partnership space, a place where interactions could occur, say, in the image of the Tennessee Valley Authority or the farm credit system or the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This could be a place outside the brick wall and an informal, that's important if you look at any leadership, informal conversations have to occur for good ideas to blossom. This informal could be an informal idea safe zone and most important, adaptable and flexible, It'd be more adaptable and flexible than the government could be. What if the board of directors at this creation and the working committees and the structures that would be invented with it um, of this new corporation were compromised completely of odd bedfellows and with the goal of to stimulate synergies, ideas and understanding. You know, the usual su su suspects would be their state and ag emergency response, federal and um, the federal and state ag and food, regulators and supporters, private sector ag and food enterprises. But let's go and keep going. EPA, entrepreneurial development, leaders and educators, law enforcement, state and federal, corporate C-suite types, especially the VPs for security, <laughs> intelligence agencies, Department of Defense, and various members of the national security priesthood and the think tank around that. What if the new corporation developed a robust modern communication department that tapped into new social media venues, utilized early warning surveillance apps? I know some of this has been attempted, but it hasn't been attempted outside of government very well. And they track and engage agricultural producers in their online and physical communities. Approach the matter with a certain flair and expertise of the marketeer. What if the act chartered, say, began to endow a 501c3 foundation, for instance, called the Institute, to act as a central clearinghouse, coordination and promotion champion, pro provide scenario building, game and exercises. They could co partner with the federal side of this, um, with games and exercises between the interested private sector entities, the state, and the federal personalities and as well as have a basket for interested philanthropic dollars to land in and to go to work. What if the Act established a connection to the Department of Commerce, NIST, Malcolm Baldrige, National Quality, Performance Excellence programs, and to establish a new award program on agriculture defense open to both government and private enterprise? The history of the Malcolm Baldrige story is a very fascinating one, starting with quality back in the 70s. What if the Act instructed new, the new Institute to Foundation to establish DARPA-like grand challenges, possibly even partner with DARPA, for problem-solving innovative ideas and approaches to homeland security, or excuse, uh, defense and, and uh, censoring or detection or social awareness? I mean, you just let your mind roll. You could, there's a lot of things we could think of there. What if the new Act included a third Merrill Act? and a second Smith-Lever Act to establish agriculture defense coordination and education delivery to and through the land-grant institutions, build, fund, and maintain a permanent professional cadre of agriculture defense, agriculture defense extension agents. I hope that provides some food for thought, some agriculture, agriculture defense food for thought. So, omnia mutanter, nos et mutamer inilis. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Mann. I can't think of a more powerful way to close out the day than to, 
to hear about the Mann Act. Uh, I'm to call it that. It wasn't I'm ready to introduce it tomorrow. The Mann Act is uh, something we probably don't want to talk about here. <laughs> <laughs> but let me just say, I, I uh, first of all, thank you for also for the enormous contribution that you have made in this field for so long. You were very integrally involved with HSPD-9 and, and uh, your ideas about contemporizing HSPD-9 are extraordinarily relevant today. I share your concern about the degree of progress we've made since it's been written, and I have come back repeatedly throughout the day about the importance of implementation. I asked Dr. Marsh at noon just what he would do to make HSPD-9 relevant in 2017, and his answer was implementation. If you could do one thing to move implementation farther ahead in a more effective way, given all the lessons learned and your enormous experience, what would that be? Well, I've, I've changed my thinking after 14 years, and, you know, the standard answer would be, you know, throw money at it, give it, you know, strong leadership, get the right personalities on top of it. You know, you want the vice president, and this vice president might be just dynamite at it. But I, I, back to my comments, I, I think we have, we have to skin the cat, if you will, a little differently, and I think we have to empower the field more so that secretaries of agriculture in you know, whatever state you pick can push on the central a little harder. And create and hold, and for the states to hold the federal entities more accountable. And if you had a federal corporation that is producing reports, analysis, and and it also is providing the safe and formal place for the secretaries of agriculture and you know everyone involved in this space to meet and think, ideas are going to start blossoming, and um, the federal bureaucracies. Hopefully, we'll pick up on that. Or going to be, there's going to be incentive for them to pay attention. That, that corporation, not that it's supposed to be their new boss, but it's going to be new competition. It's going to be their, that new corporation empowering secretaries of agriculture and you know, farmers and, and ranchers and people in the food business to speak up with this much like your, your Blue Ribbon panelists speaking up for biodefense generally, um, it gives them a venue to speak louder. Therefore, the, the bureaucracies that need to be involved in this, well, I th think and hope they would become more responsive. There's another voice out there that is holding them accountable or trying to. And I think that step, I, I'm not against, I, I, let me say again, I'm not against, you know, really empowering some centralized actor. I, back in 2004, three, we used to, in the hallway, lament over, you know, how we should do this better. You know, the National Security Council and the Homeland Security Council, we were dysfunctional. I mean, there was this big, you know, it's a perfect thing for what terrorists exploit, this big gap between us. I couldn't talk to, I couldn't go international in my thinking, supposedly, even though I did, because I befriended national security people, and so we did, we were, we, I was thinking doing national uh, agriculture defense in Afghanistan. Um, uh, so 
you know, that was just one personality. How do you institutionalize that? And I think uh, having a central figure in the form of the vice president, or I used to think it needed to be an OMB, empower OMB more. I, you know, I could argue this or think about it a lot of different ways. Uh, but I, I agree with you. We have to do that, and that's not the single first step. I think we, I think we have to have something on the outside to help create pressure. Thank you, Dr. McClaskey. Uh, one of the things that uh, that I think we all have concluded as we've looked at the challenges we face is the importance of collaboration at the federal, state, and local level. And you have so forcefully articulated the importance of collaboration and the work that you've done within the state. If you had to, if you had to reference or articulate or prioritize the most important components of an effective federal, state, local collaboration, what would it look like? Before I answer that question, I do want to note something in regard to Dr. Mann's presentation. He spoke very eloquently about the Morrill Act, and I would be remiss if I did not mention, and Sue already knows what I'm going to say, you're sitting at the home of the first land-grant university. Kansas is the first state to have accepted the Morrill Act um, policy, so it's uh, any time you talk about the Morrill Act, you have to talk about K-State. And so. what year was that? <laughs> um, in 1863, January 16th, or February 16th, correct. So the birthday's coming up. Yes. So I, when he was talking about it, I, I thought that was going to be the next less sentence, so I had to fill that part in. Um, but back to your question, I apologize. I, I think the, thematic, thematically to me, I think, um, stealing a, again some words from Dr. Mann, it's about federal coordination and state-level implementation. Um, giving the states the authority to act and work with local counties, I think, is absolutely important. But at the same time, then, those efforts have to be coordinated at a federal level. Traceability systems that are different per state are not going to do us any good. I personally believe movement control decisions that are being made and implemented differently in different states are going to cause more chaos than they are going to actually help us in disease response. So what it seems like to me is that we need to be looking at policy approaches um, in a way that, that at the federal level, we are coordinating and talking about what the, does this look like, but the input is coming directly from the states, and what can we actually do? What can we, what can we do on a given day, realistically, with the resources that we have? They're helping us do that, but the implementation is coming at the state level. That would be my thematic answer to your question, and, and I think that, um, for example, stop movement would be a perfect example of that for us. That's very helpful. Thank you. Mr. Hunt, uh, you talked about One Health and the importance of combining our efforts. How, how difficult, what are the challenges to combining data regarding human, animal, and environmental health? Could you talk a little bit more about how you look at that challenge and uh, what are the necessary components? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I'll echo some of the comments that were made earlier. Again, the data systems, by and large, are very siloed. Um, one of the initiatives we are trying to do is get electronic laboratory reporting, for example, from our uh, from our state agriculture and our, our state rabies lab, even to to come into uh, to our department. Uh, but the, but the systems are siloed. Even uh, you know getting all the work that was involved in getting electronic laboratory reporting, it you know it, it takes a lot of effort to do that. Um, the one thing I did not talk about is, uh, is our syndromic surveillance program. Uh, we. Uh, we were one of the later adopters uh, to doing syndromic surveillance, and this is hospital, uh, emergency department, chief complaint information that's coming in now. Um, I, I think that that is going to be an important component to uh, to the, inf the the surveillance we do. But 
by and large, a lot of the a lot of the surveillance systems that we have in place right now still are very dependent upon uh, actions by people. So, uh, uh, you know, the, the reportable disease system, for example, uh, right now it's still very much a manual process outside of the electronic laboratory reporting. So that's why I'm encouraged by the digital bridge project. Um, for those of you who are not aware, um, electronic case reporting uh, is part of meaningful use stage three. Uh, so uh, healthcare providers can get incentive money to implement that system. So I, I think that'll help. Um, but I think the, the more we can automate these systems to, to feed us information automatically, the, the better we'll be able to be to, to synthesize that information. Thank you very much. Pasha? Um, yesterday and today, we've been talking uh, a lot about, obviously, since we're here, uh, about, the, about the role of the state and uh, states and localities, tribes, territories, uh, more so than, than the federal government. Um, it's one of the reasons we decided to leave the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area and uh, come out somewhere else other than there. Um, and one of the notions that's come up, we've discussed it over and over again, is the, the, the fact, I shouldn't say it's a notion, the fact of federalism, uh, the system we have here in the United States. Um, and federalism is not... Um, defined as the federal government is in charge of everything and, you know, everybody else can just, you know, we're not autocratic that way. That's not what it is. Um, all three of you have touched on this on this notion. Um, Kurt, you talked about decentralization. We're decentralizing to the states, uh, you know, and so, and so forth. All, all of you have. Um, if each of you could just uh, speak to this notion, there's a, there's a, a tension between the federal government and sort of everybody else. Um, and it's not that people, you know, up there are doing something bad or wrong or, or vice versa. Um, the, we set up the country this way, and, and, it, and it works for us. But there's something uh, special about agriculture uh, and, in, in fact, something special about health, public health. The people are here. They're not all, you know, uh, stuck in Washington, D.C., all, all throughout the United States. Um, Dr. McClaskey, if you could start. Um, I would like to know how USDA felt about the decision for unified, uh, a coordinated command versus unified command. How did they, uh, how did they respond to that? <laughs> um, that's a very good question. I, I mean, think in, you did it anyway, no matter how anyway, they felt about yeah. it. Maybe that's a felt the, isn't the right. Uh, the folks in the room who know me well, that the fact we did it anyway doesn't surprise any of them. But um, I would say it was generally ignored. I think that there wasn't really an understanding when we went through our December exercise of the the difference in the roles that we were playing. And um, you know, um, Dr. Mann mentioned giving states the opportunity to push back. We used our exercise as an opportunity to push back. Our conference calls were challenging, exceptionally challenging. And we really, um, you know, intentionally pushed back on the pieces that we felt like weren't working for our state. I, I think what's interesting is, well, I, you're, I'm expressing frustration at the same time, and 
our working relationship with the USDA APHIS team and the veterinarians in that system and the state vet and all of our is, is excellent. Our, I mean, we have day-to-day working relationships. We have the state divided in regions where we may not have a state um, veterinarian in that area, but USDA does, and we mm-hmm. collaborate together. So the day-to-day working relationship is actually fantastic. And I think it's a perfect example of what a federal-state relationship should, should be. be. It's the idea of dealing with the emergency that sends us sort of tends to send us reeling. And we had a similar example in dealing with a um, flag smut and wheat and, and controversy between the federal level and the state level of whose decision it was to make it public. Mm-hmm. Um, because I felt like at some point, we shared this last night, I shared, felt like at some point it was my responsibility as the state secretary of agriculture to tell Kansas wheat farmers that this disease existed in our state. And I was getting excessive pushback um, from D.C. that we shouldn't talk about it. And so at what point then, whose decision is that? And, it, and it, at one point we compromised at a date. I said, by this date, we will announce it. It was a week later than I intended, months earlier than they wanted me to, but we did it once we made a decision. Mm-hmm. And so what's, I, I think it's a really interesting issue because of the excellent working relationships we have on a day-to-day basis. There are other federal agencies we work with I cannot say that about. Um, but in this case, it is great day-to-day it's just that when it comes to these big issues, and I think the problem is they are so challenging to deal with. No one knows in the case of FMD how we would actually find a way to call and dispose of the number of cattle we have in Kansas. It, it seems impossible. Mm-hmm. But vaccine isn't proving right now to be a reasonable solution, even under the new numbers that, um, the, that have been lobbied for. So it's, it's just I think the problem there is that there just isn't a silver bullet. Mm-hmm. And, and we're not finding a way to get all the right people in the right room to really let go of all previous decisions and talk about what are we actually going to do, which then leaves us thinking we're going to stop movement in our state and it's our job to protect our state and the folks in it as best we can. So, Charlie? Well, I, I, I guess I'll go back to something I, I stated earlier, and that is that um, I think that it's, it's important for the, the states to, to get core public health funding that can enable us to be prepared for and respond to a number of different things and to not, not – uh, fund our response efforts one disease at a time. So I think that's important. Um, you know, the, the, the role of CDC uh, for human public health is, is one of, of providing more technical assistance and, and resources and information rather than stepping in and actually taking control. So I think that uh, that's a little bit of a different aspect than it is with agriculture. Mm-hmm. I think within the state, I think that we have to, uh, you know, we, we kind of wrestle with the same issues, you know, state to federal. Within the state, we have state to local health department issues Mm -hmm. as well. And uh, again, we provide a lot of technical assistance. I think we probably do need to rethink a little bit about uh, the way we're delivering public health services, at least in Kansas. You know, going back to my earlier comments about the, uh, you know, the, the the large number of very small health departments being responsible for responding to anything that comes along. And uh, we are actually have a working group in the state right now called the Council on the Future of Public Health in Kansas to look at look at these issues. So maybe the approach is going to be to do some regionalization or to share services across counties. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we'll be looking at that and um, and making recommendations eventually to to improve things. Okay, thank you, Kurt. Uh, wow, good question, Asha. Well, thank you. You, you <laughs> called me out a little bit. Um, I. I think we, I, I approach this not as a, a negative, and the, the theme is it's a negative thing. I think we're designed as a country that way, and it's good. This tension, we don't want it to go away. 
Uh, we want that tension. That's probably one, right, one reason we're still a country in, in, a, in a form of a democracy. Um, I mean, James Madison, who was very much a states' rights guy, became you know a federalist essentially with the, the Federalist Papers uh, to try and keep the union together. Mm -hmm. So there is a balance here. It's a difficult thing. The states, I mean, if 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 everything blew up, Washington is only going to be able to send in federal troops uh, if the states want to do something. Mm -hmm. You know, we could get down to that ugliness. But I think the tension is good. We should endorse it. We should embrace it. We should respect it. And I, I'm just trying to advocate for a place where that tension can have informal space to not get into the, a shouting match. A shou excuse me, shouting match in in the moment of uh, crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, and who's in charge? And who's shutting their borders mm -hmm. down? And the president having to give orders to you know order and. Um, a, a governor not to do something. I mean, we don't need to go there, but we could get there with agriculture because it's to people's hearts. I was trying to say this is important. Look at a state like Kansas. This you're going to mess with too many people's lives. Mm -hmm. So I'm back to the positive on this is I, I think the tension is good. It's just how we manage the tension. Um, I think um, sometimes the the bureaucracies, uh, the federal bureaucracy, and it works in the state too. Um, get a little too um, stuck in the mud. And it, it is, it's human nature. It's like, who's in charge? I'm in charge. And ultimately, the federal, if we're going to be a union, the federal has to have a final dis dis decision because of, it involves trade and, and uh, potentially, you know, national defense in some ways. So, you know, the Fed will always eventually trump somehow or another. But I think we explore the tension earlier upstream like a good old, the old public health analogy, you go upstream to find your source. And um, the epidemiologist law, uh, we go upstream and try and create, well, Francis Fukuyama, who's a political social scientist, writes about social capital. We, we go upstream and try, because we know there's tension there, and we try and build um, social capital, which is the lubricant that makes transactions occur in life. If there's distrust, you, you just have a litigation society. So if you want efficient transactions to occur, you should really listen to what Brett Marsh talked about today. There was a lot of social capital going on there because he, he had trust built in with all his producers, that producers trusted the, the state government. Um, they knew that the state government was gonna not going to come in and do something silly. So it was that was a wonderful story. So. I think, and that only occurs because someone went upstream and thought about it and talked about it and and um, and knew that tension was going to be there and they worked with it and not treated it like it was bad. They treated it like it was good. Thank uh, we thank the panel. Uh, <laughs> we're very very grateful for each of uh, to each of you for your extraordinary comments and the wisdom you shared with us today, as well as the experiences that you personally bring to the table. This concludes our meeting, but before we officially close, let me ask uh, President Myers for any concluding remarks he might have. Thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, Senator Deschel. Um, Mr. Hunt and his, uh, his uh, travel, uh, uh, story on travel, uh, brought to mind stopping through Port Moresby in Papua New Guinea, and you go into the 
the terminal there, I was on a Air Force little Learjet on the way to Australia. So you go into the terminal and you go into the men's restroom and then the urinals were all lined up against the wall and above that was a huge sign, the length of these 10 or 12 urinals and a great big red letters that says, warning, if you should become ill <laughs> after you leave here, please inform your doctor you were in Papua New Guinea because about every disease known to man and some not known yet are there. So it just it reminded me of that. It's, uh, there's ways to warn people. That was very effective for me. I would not have forgotten <laughs> to remind my doctors I'm standing here fairly relaxed. Uh, thank you all for coming. It's been a pleasure to host you. We have had, I've enjoyed these panels. This, there's some real, there's a lot of wisdom coming out of this, these panels. I'm, for me and I think for all of us in, in some such great knowledge of what the problem is, both from a technical standpoint and what the problem is to do anything about it. It's just remarkable. I hope it was useful for the panel because I got a lot out of it. And I think uh, everybody in this room would agree that agriculture is part of our infrastructure in this country. I'm not sure everybody knows that or thinks about it that way, but just like railroads or power plants or water or whatever, this is really an important part of our infrastructure. Uh, the other thing that came out uh, to me was, and reinforced but my, with my, um, my life as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, was how you deal with terrorism or violent extremism, however you like to talk about it. And um, I don't think our country's got that right yet. I think that, that that's a big problem. That's a global problem like we're talking here. This is a global problem, not just a Kansas problem, not a Nebraska problem or University of Minnesota. This is a global problem. Uh, terrorism is certainly a global problem. can't be solved by one country, one agency, one whatever. You just can't do it. You, and yet, and I'll be a little critical here, I think the, the United States, and I've written about this, uh, re over-relied on the military instrument of power and not the other instruments. Um, it really came across that this is a global issue and everybody needs to collaborate and we need to have partnerships like we've never had before. I thought uh, Dr. Mann's point on how do, you, how do you mechanize this so it works, there's some pretty innovative thought there because it doesn't always work very well, even with the best intentions. I'll give you my Katrina story. So I was the chairman when Katrina happened and I was on the front row of watching the feud between the federal level and the state level, mainly over politics. Not what was happening, but over politics. In the meantime, people get hurt, okay? And I, it, was, it was gross. And I was right in the middle of that, because we, anyway, long story, one of the anecdotes is kind of fun. So President Bush goes down to New Orleans, you know, I think the weekend, it happened on Tuesday, he goes down that weekend. Um, Mayor Nagin came out to brief him, I think it was Mayor Nagin there in New Orleans. And uh, he's been living in the top floor of some hotel that doesn't have water or anything. So the president says, you want to take a shower and clean up? He says, sure. So he cleans up, comes out. He says, Mayor, who's in charge of security for New Orleans right now? Because the intel was saying there are people taking shots. It turned out the intel was wrong, but that's what we believe. Everybody believed that there was a big security issue. And the, the mayor thought for a while. He says, well, that'd be the governor in Baton Rouge. And so later that day, the president was in Baton Rouge. Governor. Who's in charge of security in New Orleans? She thinks for a while, she says, well, the mayor, of course. So, I mean, this can really get out of whack if we don't have, Dr. Mann, did you talk about informal space? Uh, whatever, I mean, there's, there's, there's gotta be ways to do this that we don't get in those kind of fights when, when people's lives and our economy and our health is at risk. So 
a lot of this resonated because I've lived it in a different life. Uh, all I know is that Kansas State University, we want to be a good partner. We want to collaborate. If there are any silos here that we need to break down, point me toward them and we'll go do our best because uh, this has to be, at least at the university level, an interdisciplinary uh, effort. And so, we, again, we, we appreciate having you all here. I've learned a lot. It's been, uh, been very enlightening. And then I think it's going to help me do my job better as, uh, uh, in my capacity here at Kansas State Uni University. Again, I thank Ron Truon for helping put this together and everybody that did. And I hope we hosted uh, folks came from out of town. I hope we hosted you appropriately. Um, critique us. We'll do better next time. So thank you very much. Thanks, Senator. President Myers, let me just say, I There is no way you could do it better next time because you've done it as well as anyone could possibly expect. We can't thank you enough. I want to reiterate uh, our sincere thanks to each of our distinguished speakers today. Uh, as uh, General Myers said, I think they spoke with enormous wisdom. And uh, we've taken a lot of notes. It's all on, on record, of course, and uh, we'll be taking into careful consideration uh, those ideas and proposals as we write our next set of recommendations to Ron Turwin, the best. We just can't thank you enough, Ron, for all of your help. Sue Peterson, uh, Ken had to leave, Ken Weinstein for making the trip, Ellen Carlin for making the trip as well, my, my colleague Asha George, Julia Rodriguez, uh, and all of you for sitting through the entire day. We're very, very grateful. It was our first report where we described a scenario involving an attack uh, in, uh, with the Nipah virus. We spent some time writing a hypothetical scenario that we thought was necessary to, to give people a better appreciation of what it is we're up against. Well, in our second report last month, we provided an update on the threat, which included recently thwarted plans abroad to use anthrax and to poison food. We also considered the impact of zoonotic diseases, Zika and Ebola. And the panel expressed increasing concern for diseases that move between animals and plants. Well, today I think we heard a great deal about the importance of the implementation of a One Health policy. And I hope we can remember that as we go forward. And for me, the key words were those expressed by Dr. Dr. Khan, leadership, will, and resources. We need all three. And I think it's up to us to ensure that those three components are prioritized. Animal, plant, and human threat is real. The impact could be catastrophic, and it threatens our health, our economy, and our very national security. Our job is to take the wisdom we've heard today and turn it into action. We leave energized. And on behalf of the entire Blue Ribbon study on the panel on biodefense, let me thank you all again for being here and for your contribution. Thank you, Senator. Absolutely.